pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. But you better hurry because there's only one line left open. We're going to talk to AJ and Kathy and Susan. And if you dial quickly, you can grab that last line. Beautiful morning out there. If you haven't been out... It feels kind of like a Northern California morning. It's just got that little bit of Christmas to the air, a little bit of humidity to the air. Very, very still. Not much breeze moving at all. Oh, just be a great day to be out walking, or as I was just discussing with my engineer, Don, it'd be a great day to be out fishing. He said it'd be a great day to be out golfing. So let's just sum it up and say it would be a great day to be outside, especially if you're gardening. So if you've got gardening questions, you know that's what we're here to talk about, and lots of things to talk about. Time to plant cool weather flowers, cool weather vegetables, time to fertilize everything in the landscape. I could go on and on, but I think we need to start out seeing what kind of situations A.J. may have encountered this morning. Uh, good morning, A.J. Yes, Bobby, we have an unusual situation to, uh, this past <laughs> week. Well, tell me about it. Well, you know, those those worms that get into those live oak trees and kind of defoliate the ends of the branches where the new leaves are? Yes, sir. Well, my bride had to have a new driveway, so we put a new driveway in, and, you know, it's nice and white and mm-hmm. dry. And, and then uh, I noticed that there were some droppings on the, on the concrete, and, you know, I'd blow them off with a blower, and then we got a... Uh, rain come through and, and wetted them, and I, you know, kind of washed them off a day or so later, and then kept blowing and blowing, and I noticed stains on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and those droppings stained that concrete. Do you know what will take them off other than a new driveway? Oh, boy. Um, you know, probably, um... Something like, uh, they call it muriatic acid. It's just it's dilute hydrochloric acid. It's what they sell at swimming pool companies. That's what they use to take stains out of, uh, you know, swimming pools and places like that that is really hard to get them out of. I will tell you that it's probably going to be an ongoing problem, and if she wants to have that concrete stay sparkling brand new looking, you may need to talk to one of these companies that puts sort of a sealer on the concrete. Uh, I think it's an epoxy kind of material they use that creates a smooth surface that keeps anything from soaking in. But, you know, you remember from the days we were kids, no matter how long ago that was, how chlorophyll stains, you know, how tough it is to get the green stain out of the knees of your blue jeans and things like that. Well, in effect, the leaves are just passing through the caterpillars. A lot of caterpillars or a lot of chlorophyll comes out in the caterpillar poop. And uh, that's what is one of the main things that does that green staining. And it's just as hard to get off the concrete as it is to get off the blue jeans. But uh, I don't think any of your real mild cleaners are going to do it. I think you're probably going to have to go to 
a swimming pool company, or they might sell it at one of the big box stores or lumber yards. But uh, what you can ask for is just muriatic acid. You're going to wear gloves. You're going to wear eye protection when you're using it. It's diluted down to the point that it's not really dangerous, but it's not something you want to get on your skin. So I think that's going to be the best hope uh, to either... Uh, to get to get that stain out of the concrete, either that or you're gonna have to hide her glasses so she can't see them. Because <laughs> because I'm not sure you're gonna get a hundred percent of it out anyway. So, uh, but uh, that'll come the closest I know of to remedying your situation. Now, I would. Uh, you know, think about putting out some of those little trichogramma wasp strips. It's unusual to have those caterpillars this late in the year. They usually are something that shows up just in early spring, but in, te- in anticipation of future situations that may arrive, uh, I think I'd be getting one of those little wasp strips and putting it out every few weeks. All right. Well, see, it's we always have them in the fall. That's yeah. Uh, oh, really? I don't okay. Much in the spring, very little. But in the fall they are, and this year I didn't put them out, and so they got they they got they got in there and and did their thing. Yeah, so, anyhow, and that's the problem. The the little wasp, the little trick of grandma, they destroy the eggs. But once the eggs have hatched into the caterpillars, you know that's like a that's like a, a mosquito going after an elephant. It's not going to do much of anything to it. So. Uh, um, if you feel like most of them are already hatched out, don't worry oh, yeah. about it. If you feel like they're still hatching out, um, as long as there are eggs out there, those little wasps can parasitize them and keep the numbers down. Mm-hmm. I got a, uh, this one tree that's right above the driveway. It's about a 18, 24 inch diameter. How many of them strips would you hang on it? One. One will take care of it. One will take care of it. Uh, you figure that every one of those little strips has three or four thousand developing wasp larvae, and every one of those little wasps is going to get two, three hundred eggs. So, uh, and then every one of those two or three hundred eggs is going to hatch out into another wasp that'll get two or three hundred of those eggs. So, no, they recommend even in fairly densely forested area, they only put out four or five strips per acre. Um, now, pecan growers do it a little bit heavier, just trying to protect every single pecan. But uh, one of those strips goes a long, long way, and I think one would be plenty for that beautiful big oak tree. All righty. Well, I'll give that a try next year if, if the undertaker or the sheriff don't come get me, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only I, uh, I would a- hang out the unwelcome sign to both of those well i don't know my sheriff's a good friend of mine but uh the undertaker i very definitely uh would tell him he's got the wrong address give him, give him the address of a couple of politicians we know that uh, <laughs> no i should not say that i but boy i'm tired of the news i'll sure be yeah, glad when yeah, uh yeah. when another uh, couple of weeks go by <laughs> Well, AJ, hey, always good to start the morning off with a fellow with a good sense of humor. So you get out and have a good, good weekend. All right, you behave yourself. Bye. Oh, I'll, I'll try. I don't have much choice. All right. <laughs> Thanks, AJ. Bye. Goodbye. Okay, Kathy's up next. Uh, good morning, Kathy. Uh, good morning. Um, can you good hear morning. me? Good morning. I hear you fine. Okay. okay. Uh, I've been trying to get a hold of you for a couple of weeks, but I know your situation. Um, I was ready to drive over there today to the nursery to talk to you. Um, I have a, it's either three to 500 year old oak tree, uh, right, uh, within a 
within a mile of Medina Lake uh, on the okay. Bandera side. And yep. it has come out now with um, Chicken of the Wood, um, uh, also Sulfur Shelf with the mushrooms that are growing out of it. Um, and um, it's a, actually a rent house, and I just hate to lose that tree. And I, mm-hmm. uh, my renter talked to an arborist, and he said that you need to bore into it to see how badly it's infected. And uh, he didn't tell us anything that we could do to maybe slow the virus down. Um, well, he it's, it's not said, a virus. Not a virus. Oh, okay. Um, um, well, what, it, what do you suggest? It it makes it is a little um, it's a little it's actually a fungal organism it's a fungus and it basically attacks dead wood in a tree uh, doesn't do a lot of additional damage and there you're never going to find an old oak tree around that doesn't have some dead wood in it uh, that you know and this is just uh, they call them shelf fungi uh, my friend uh, Arbor's friend David Vaughn calls them tree ears. Um, I, you know, he's the best arborist I know. He doesn't have anything, uh, I mean, he'll, he'll talk to you over the phone. You probably don't even need to think about asking him to come out, but, uh, uh and he doesn't, uh, he's, he's basically retired from climbing trees, so he's not going to try to sell you anything. But, uh, let me give you David's number, uh, which okay. is 210. Are you ready to write? Yes, sir. Uh huh. 210 788 49 Eight six. Okay, and his name is David. David Vaughn. He's the guy. He teaches the classes that our other arborists have to take if they want to become certified arborists. And just ask him if there's anything new in the treatment for uh, shelf fungus or tree ears, is what he often calls them. But I'm sure not going to push the panic button at this point. And um, does the does the growth on the tree look healthy? Is it you know basically yeah. just the same? Yeah, it, I, it's not anything to lose. I'm sorry. Oh, it, it's not anything to lose sleep over. Thank God. I would, yeah, I would not lose now, sleep. It's something that it, and he will tell you if there's anything you need to do. But you know, you get a tree that size that's probably been hit by lightning twenty times over its life or more. That's been through windstorms. That uh, you know, broken branches here and there. So it, it's hard to find one of these oaks that we call a heritage oak that doesn't have a little bit of dead wood in it. And if it has any dead wood in it, it's perfectly natural to have, uh, you know, these fungi that are basically decomposing and breaking down that dead wood. I was kind of surprised, David was telling me recently when we were visiting, that uh, research indicates that even a hollow tree if it has, you know, a couple of inches of wood left, I mean, it might be a huge tree that's totally hollow in the middle, it's still 80% as strong as it was when it was just a totally solid trunk. So oak trees are pretty resilient. It wouldn't have made it this long up there in Bandera County, if uh, or, or Medina County, which, whichever you're in, if it... Uh, if it, you know, wasn't a good strong tree. Um, I always, uh, if you have any oak wilt anywhere around you or anything like that, I'd think about putting out a little corn water tea periodically just to keep that tree's immune system or what passes for an immune system strong because there's just gotten to be so much oak wilt in Kendall and Bandera and Kerr County all, all put up that way. But, uh, that tree's very definitely worth protecting. But, uh, give David a call and see if he recommends that you do anything. It's, it's certainly not anything thing that's going to, you know, attack your tree and knock it down overnight. Okay. He, my renter has actually been going as where he can reach and cleaning 
cleaning that off and spraying Flex Seal on the on where he's cleaned off is that a should he be doing that or is that I, I wouldn't. I would not use Flex Shield for anything. And the only place that I would spray anything on is if he's actually gotten into live wood. Uh, if you expose live wood through pruning or you know some accident or anything happens that exposes live green wood on the tree, that is a place that potentially the insects could transfer the oak wilt fungus in. And you sure don't want to get oak wilt. But uh, dead tissue and things like that. Uh, uh, no danger whatsoever. And if you have, you know, it used to be if you had a cavity or something like that in a tree, everybody thought you filled them with concrete or anything like that. And the evidence is that you're doing a lot more damage than you're doing good. So, uh, I, I, I would definitely seal, and it doesn't have to be, uh, pruning paint. It can be just plain old latex paint because it only has to stay steel for about 10 days. But I would seal any cut made into live wood but uh dead wood dead limbs things like that no don't give it a second thought okay and you said something i know one time about getting cornmeal from uh just the feed store or whatever okay and sprinkling it around as or making corn water Yeah, and helping friends, and I've been talking about this for, no, I don't know, 10, 15 years, that we found that putting out the dry cornmeal, we could prevent, we could reverse oak wilt. We didn't really know how it happened back then, and I've been very openly criticized by the A&M people and everybody else that says I don't know what I'm talking about. But now there's scientific evidence that it creates something we call systemic acquired resistance to oak wilt and other fungal diseases. But the fun thing we found is that... uh, you get just as much protection if you take five gallon bucket of water at about two cups of cornmeal and let it soak overnight and then just pour that water not out around the drip line but up within 10 feet of the trunk and it sure does take a lot less cornmeal if you're making a few buckets of corn water tea than to try to put out uh uh, I know my friend uh, that I buy hay from up in Sisterdale that saved a couple of giant trees with it, but I think I had to get Larry like 400 pounds of cornmeal because that was back when we still were putting it out dry. But uh, the corn water tea uh, it seems to be just as effective and uses a lot less cornmeal. Oh, that's great information. Thank you so much. I appreciate your help. You have a wonderful day in the hill country and get ready for a weather change. I hear <laughs> we're going to see in hill country, you're likely to see uh, low 40s, uh, two or three mornings coming this next week. So uh, uh, we'll all be happy for the cooler weather, but let's hope we're all prepared for it, Kathy. <laughs> have a great day. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, uh, Susan, you'll be up next. Uh, right now, I get to talk about the good guys and gals at Air Conditioning Service Company. And, you know, every other ad it seems like you hear on the radio is either for a water software company or an air conditioning service company. And you're wondering, what makes one different from another? Well, one thing I'll tell you about air conditioning service company is their technicians are trained to work on every, just every imaginable system out there. Uh, you don't have to worry what kind of air conditioner you have. The air conditioning service company guys are trained to service that system, to inspect it, uh, to be sure it's operating efficiently and to fix it if it needs fixing. 
That's the other big difference, is they're out to fix your old system, not just, uh, oh, I was talking to somebody the other day that said, over the phone, they told him he needed a new air conditioning system uh, to be $4,500 or something like that. No, that's not the way they work. They have great new energy-efficient systems, and there comes a time when you will want to upgrade to a new system. I had to do that this past year, as a matter of fact, when the old one totally failed. But these guys want to keep your old system going as long as it's running, as long as it's economically practical and as long as it's operating safely and fall is a very important time to check that system for safety as well as for efficiency learn more give them a call uh, you can check them out on the website if you like it stay cool sa.com and if you want to give them a call easy number 210-796-9550 796-9550 for air conditioning service company all right, back to gardening on a beautiful Sunday morning. Susan is next, and it'll be Glenn and Dolores. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Bob. How are you? It's just a really nice morning out there, and uh, oh, it's just it's fall, <laughs> and it's just a fun time of year. It what is, can I say? It is beautiful. Um, I have I've been listening, obviously, and I have some questions. Um, our yard, I know I've been hearing, you know, fertilizing and fertilizing, but we have some spots in our yard that mm-hmm. seem to be more like volunteer look-alike plants that from a distance your lawn can look like a lawn, but right up close there's <laughs> sprigs of grass and then all these other things. Mm-hmm. So how I'm thinking that I'm probably looking at a, a plan that's going to have to take place in steps to return this to looking like a lawn in those spots. Well, but, I just uh, hope everybody has bad eyesight. You know, tell me what what is your uh, basic uh, what is your basic lawn grass? Well, Bermuda most or of it, I believe, or? is Bermuda. Mm-hmm. It's not okay. St. Augustine that I know. Okay, um, but particularly, we have a sidewalk that bisects our front yard from the street mm-hmm. to our front door. My neighbor has zoysia on the one side, and the grass over there that gets lots of sun and all that, lovely. But the grass that's under our oaks um, on the other side of the sidewalk, I see some erosion. It looks like, uh, not terrible, but like water has run down there and maybe washed away. And then we have, we live in Garden Ridge, and we have those big stones. There's one in the middle that's just, (laughs) if there's a half inch of soil over it, that's a lot. Right. So your yard, so you have a good deal of shade in the yard? We do. Okay, and here's the problem is Bermuda is a full sun grass. Uh, If it were out in the sun, Bermuda will choke out everything except St. Augustine. St. Augustine is the toughest grass out there, and it will choke out everything. But uh, Bermuda in the sun is great. Bermuda in the shade is always going to have an issue. So um, you can kill every weed out there, but what is happening is that you've got all these weeds that say, hey, I'm happy in the shade. Look at this bare ground. I think I'm going to move in. And so you can treat and treat and treat and treat and treat and uh you'll kill what's there and it'll come right back and you'll kill it again and it'll come right back and uh uh it gets very very frustrating so you know the choice is do you really want grass would you be happier with a ground cover like asiatic jasmine or something like that that will do in the shade um if you say i really want to have grass out there uh, and by the way you could go with a lookalike like dwarf monkey grass or something like that at least in limited areas but if you really want to have grass uh at some point you are going to replace it with a shade tolerant saint augustine grass such as del mar or palmetto now it doesn't have to be done all at once 
I mean, if it's in the budget and somebody's got the energy to do it, uh, there are folks out there who would just, you know, totally resaw the lawn. And uh, you're saying Augustine will do much, much better in the shade than the Bermuda ever dreamed of. If it were me doing it and if I had the water, because St. Augustine does require watering. Bermuda, if you don't water it, it turns brown, but it doesn't die. St. Augustine, if you don't water it, it dies. So... Um, mm. If I had the water to do it, I'd just start taking little plugs of it, putting it here and there, and just water and fertilize and letting it choke out uh, the the unhealthy Bermuda and choke out all the weeds. And that's the, you know, that's the best long-term solution. Now, I personally think most people have too much grass in their yards. I think they, there's so many beautiful things that grow in the shade from you know, holly fern to this time of year, uh, the cyclamen are so colorful, and uh, we've got a list. We give people free of charge. It probably has 50 different plants that are happier in the shade out there. Now, if you're in Garden Ridge, uh, in the front yard, do you have deer issues? We have deer. Okay. They don't give us yeah. any issues, but we may not have provided them issues. Well, then you haven't. You just haven't planted the plants that they would like to die yeah. on. So, uh, yeah. if you decide to put in some shade tolerant plants, you'll have to be conscious of which things the deer are most likely to leave alone. But uh, they're not grass eaters. I mean, axis are grass eaters. They'll tell you, tear up your grass. But whitetails, which is what. You know, the majority of the deer in the hill country at this point, uh, they're browsers. They eat twigs and uh, and actually some of the weeds and things. They don't go after lawn grass, so they're not going to be an issue there. But if you decide to go with beds and reduce the amount of grass, then you have to be careful to plant things that uh, will be... Um, <laughs> we'll tolerate some some munching by the deer occasionally or else that the deer just don't like but uh I, you know it it will be a longer process but it, it it will be a total failure if you try to you know improve what's there because the bermuda's simply not going to be happy unless you decide to cut down the oaks and i don't think that's going to happen uh no no <laughs> all right and <laughs> no, because they are absolutely lovely, oh, um, sure. which does lead into my second question, which um, the the woman before we talked about oaks, and so I did write down the information for David Vaughn and all, uh-huh. but how do I know when my oaks need to be trimmed? They never need to be trimmed. Uh, they need to be trimmed if you have like a major break somewhere um sometimes if they make very narrow angles they may need to be cabled or braced to uh you know to prevent storm damage but uh the only the only reason you trim an oak is because you want it to look different or you know you drive around south texas you see these gorgeous huge oak trees with limbs mm-hmm. that are down touching the ground that's what that's why mother nature intended those trees to grow uh because the closer the limbs are to the ground the more they shade the roots the more they shade the roots the cooler the soil is the healthier the tree is going to be so uh trimming oak trees is strictly to please susan and uh has nothing at all to do with when the tree needs to be pruned. It, uh, um, I can't really think, you know, and again, if a tree got struck by lightning and you had some damage to it that was in danger of falling on the home or if there were some issue with the tree that were posing a physical threat, yes, you would need to prune. But 
most of the time you just have these folks that all they want to do is take your money and uh, you know tell you they're going to make your trees look prettier. But uh, live oaks do not need to be pruned. Uh, now, if you have them rubbing on your house or ruining your roof or soft soffits or something like that, yeah, I definitely would do some pruning then. But uh, don't fall for this gimmick that uh, oh we're gonna we're gonna trim your oaks because they need to be trimmed. That's uh, simply not the truth. Oh well, that is wonderful information. Because um, well, because they they are absolutely fabulous and huge. But yeah, two of them are very close to our. I mean, their limbs mm-hmm. at the outermost are really yeah. close to our roof. Um, and so you may want to yeah, you may want to trim those. I wouldn't do it excessively because they're lowering your energy no. bills in the in the summer months. But uh if they're to the point that they're rubbing on things, uh yeah, I in that case uh some trimming would be in order and you very definitely need to seal every wound that's made on the trees. But this these folks that want to come in and charge you huge amounts of monies to go through and thin out your trees and things like that, they're doing more harm than they are good, so don't fall for that. I mean, if you have every oak tree as it really matures because the outer part of the canopy gets thicker and thicker it's going to shade out the sunlight getting to the inside of the tree and some of those interior limbs are going to die if you want to trim those out that's just fine but uh, again that's kind of like trimming your hair or your fingernails the tree doesn't know one way or the other and believe me when you when you travel the the hill country in south texas and see these majestic trees just out away from civilization so to speak uh somehow they managed to make big giant beautiful trees without anybody getting in there and trimming them every couple of years mm-hmm. and taking the landowner's money so uh yeah it's uh, there there may indeed come a time when uh like i say trees rubbing on your house or when one reason or another it it has a potential to cause damage yeah in that case you might need to do a little bit of trimming but uh this business to go in and for artistic reasons is uh bs oh perfect that's great um okay <laughs> and my final qu- my final question um is we have some bougainvillea in pots mm-hmm. can i can i put it in the ground I wouldn't do it this time of year uh, because it will have very little time to become established and would be more susceptible to cold damage. You can put it in the ground, and it's a gamble. Um, you know, bougainvilleas don't like temperatures below 32 degrees, and bougainvilleas frequently die if the temperatures get below 15 or 20 degrees. And so it definitely, you'll be out covering when the time comes we get some really cold weather might not be this winter might not be next year we have had you know much warmer winters the past three or four years with one or two really cold periods interspersed so you i I, you know if you want to put them in the ground i would do it in the spring so that they will be as well established as possible before next winter comes around but um you know it's it's always a little bit of a gamble because we never know i've lived here long enough to have seen some really cold winters I can only remember, I mean, we've had our nursery here for 39 years. I can only remember two years in 39 years that I've actually seen established bougainvilleas in the ground fully killed. But I can tell you lots of winters when they've been frozen way, way back to the point that it took them a while to come out. So uh, the choice is yours. You're in Garden Ridge, so you're a little colder than San Antonio. I'll just tell you, in Bernie, outside Bernie where I live, I would not put bougainvilleas in the ground. 
Okay, because I have them in big pots now, mm-hmm. um, but then when I t- so I think I'll be taking them and my perennial hibiscus in. But perennial hibiscus things- probably don't need to. Uh, tropical hibiscus will have to come in, uh, but yeah, it's. Uh, um, if the temperature is going to be significantly below freezing, you ought to try to get those bougainvilleas in. And by in, do we mean like in watching TV with us or in the garage? How cold is it going to get? If uh, if it's oh. going to get, say, down to 20, the garage is probably fine. If it's going to get down to 10 degrees, I hope they enjoy uh, whatever you watch on TV. <laughs> okay. Okay, and then, but the perennial hibiscus, can I plant it in the ground next spring, or should oh, it absolutely. stay in its big pot? Oh, no, okay. uh, it's perennial hibiscus, you know, any plant can suffer if the pot freezes all the way through, but um, mm-hmm. they're, they're two different kinds of really perennial hibiscus. One of them is a woody shrub that we call an althea. They'll go to 10 below zero without mm-hmm. damage. And then we have the ones that uh, freeze down but come right back out, like the mallows and the lunas and the Texas star and the moy grande and, uh, you know, a lot of these. And it's perfectly normal for them to freeze down and come back out. And, uh, oh, gosh, first year we had the nursery, it went to about 5 degrees, and we had them in pots, and they obviously froze, and they came back out. Oak trees died in pots that year, and the perennial hibiscus came right back out. So um, it's they're only going to need protection in an extreme extraordinarily severe winter, but do expect that they will get some damage in an average winter. Okay. And by damage, I mean just freezing down, but then they come right back out. Okay. Perfect. Great. Well, that's a lot of great information for me to work with today. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad you got through this morning. I look forward to talking again sometime. Thank you, Susan. All right. Thank you. Certainly. Bye. All right, got to get a break in here, and uh, we'll be right back to the phone calls. And, you know, talking about all this potential cold weather leads in perfectly to me telling you about the freeze miser. And I, this is just is truly one of the neatest devices I have ever seen. I was very skeptical when I first heard about it, and then I saw it and understood the workings of it. And I put them on my faucets last year, and I absolutely love them. Freeze Miser is a simple device. It has no batteries. It has no uh, wires. It doesn't work on uh, doesn't work on electricity at all. It works on uh, some physics and some good chemistry. And it protects your hydrants from freezing. How many times have you had to go out and drip the hydrants? And have you ever had a hydrant break? I mean, weird things happen in town. Uh, I think of years living in town. You went out and dripped the hydrants, and then everybody else in town dripped theirs. The water pressure went down, and your hydrants froze anyway. Well, the freeze visor takes all the guesswork out of it. It knows, and I'll just leave it at that, it knows when the temperature inside the hydrant drops below 40 degrees. has nothing to do with air temperature. But when there's a danger that the water inside the hydrant would freeze, it automatically begins dripping very slowly. Now, if you happen to be up north where they've used these things for years and it's going to get to 20 below zero, uh, the colder it gets, the more it will drip to prevent damage. And as soon as it warms up, stop stops dripping. You don't have to do a thing. It takes care of itself. And uh, I put it, I put mine on with Y connectors on my uh, exposed hydrant so that I can leave my hose attached on one side and use it when I need to. But when it gets really cold, well, the other side, the freeze miser drips and protects that hydrant. It's just a neat device. 
nice. I used them all last winter. I will be using them this winter, and I'm recommending them to all my friends. You know, you'll find them at good nurseries around. You'll find them at good hardware stores around. It's Freeze, F-R-E-E-Z-E, Freeze Miser, M-I-S-E-R. out there and uh, such a great day for gardening and it's gonna it's gonna change but uh gonna be a little chillier next week maybe maybe just we're gonna have a chance of a good rain as well so uh uh that would certainly be welcome right now we're just talking gardening glenn is up next and it'll be dolores and danny good morning glenn good morning sir good morning sir how are you today I'm doing very well. Just sitting here looking out at a at a fall day, and uh, seems like we've either been at summer or approaching winter. But this is just one of those in between days. It's just about as nice as it can be. Hey, man, I, I'm sitting on my back patio and uh, watching, feeding the birds and watching nature. Uh, uh, my question, good way to be. my my question is, I need an organic treatment for termites. Okay. Do you have any recommendations? Absolutely, depending on where the termites are. Are they in the fence? Are they in your home? If they're in your home, are they on an exterior wall? Uh, yes. Where? Okay. Um, here's the problem with termites, and uh, that when home builders, I'd say 98% of the home builders, when they pour a slab, they leave holes in the slab, all the penetrations, and this is where they, you know, bring the pipes and sometimes wiring and things like that through. And there are a handful of good home builders that put a stainless steel mesh down there so nothing can get through it. But if you get a colony of termites, because termites, uh, the termites we have in this area, the great majority of them, uh, they actually, their colony is in the soil, and then they come up into the wooden part of your home to feed. And if you've got termites way down in the middle of your slab coming up through those holes in the slab to feed on things, I'm afraid it's a job for a professional. It's not a do-it-yourself job. But if you have them on the perimeter of your home or if you have them in a wooden fence or a shop or something like that, beneficial nematodes will kill them very effectively. Uh, they, to a nematode, they're just a big ant. They're an opportunity for the nematode to parasitize them, reproduce in them, and kill them in the process. So um, if you, you know, if you have the little tunnels on or the little uh, kind of dirt tunnels they build on the outside, uh, I would begin by soaking that area very thoroughly with uh, one of the beneficial nematodes that controls termites. And in most cases, that's going to take care of the problem. Now, if that colony is way up underneath the slab, uh, you know, where the termite or where the uh, nematodes can't get to them, well, then that's when you have to, you know, resort to having somebody that has the equipment to get under. And uh, they, uh, you know, there's some much more user-friendly products, so to speak. They're not uh, they're not the really bad stuff that they used to put out for termites. But where they're in the fence out in the yard, where they're, you know, in the wall of your shop, when they're right on the perimeter, on the, on the periphery, on the perimeter of your home, uh, beneficial nematodes will take care of just fine. Uh, you can also... Uh, use if you know exactly where they are and uh and i've done this a time or two i had some come up uh, underneath the, the brick floor i put in my greenhouse and i just used uh, orange oil and water and soaked it down through the brick and i wiped them out with the first treatment there but in general i recommend uh using using the beneficial nematodes now recognize it go ahead go ahead these these are uh appearing beam houses and uh a, a shop that 
had some wood that was lifted off the ground, uh, you know, by uh, some blocks or whatever else. They, the, the termites got into some paneling we had there, uh, yeah. but they're starting to get into the shop, which is up on Pier and Beam. And the house itself, the exterior, we know that the main beam on the exterior is eaten up, but we yeah. want to try and uh, uh, get them killed off. I, okay. I imagine they're probably mostly all over the yard, too. I know well, they're subterranean uh, termites, but uh, do you think just beet, uh, blue sponges, those BT uh, sponges yeah, will take care of it? Yeah, it's, it's not BT, but the blue sponges. Here, Here's the problem where you're actually under a structure. The soil has to be moist for the nematodes to be able to move through and, uh, you know, get to the termites. So it would be an area that you can, you know, get the soil pretty wet for them to be able to effectively go after that. Now, uh, if it's an area and, you know, it's way under a pyramid home or something like that, uh, you could try saturating the soil with either a rosemary oil-based product or an orange oil-based product, and that will certainly kill them. It's, uh, it's certainly not as easy as it is to use, but unfortunately, beneficial nematodes don't work in super dry soil. Uh, they work great in the yard, and they work great, you know, in any area that you can wet it thoroughly before you put them out. But you're going to have to make the judgment call on your own situation whether you be able to do that. No problem. Uh, we we do have access to uh, the exterior of the house. I mean, worst case scenario, we can put a uh, drip hose around the exterior for a while, let it run, then come in with the uh, blue sponge and uh, saturate it. Yeah, and and as long as as long as there's moisture where the uh, uh, nematodes can get through to the termite colony, they'll wipe them out a hundred percent. Do you know but, about uh, how long it might take? Oh, two or three days. Fantastic. Yeah, they move pretty right. quickly. But but understand now, if that main colony is way <clears throat> back under the house where you can't get the soil moist, uh, you're probably going to have to have some professional help on that one. We can get underneath the house. That's not an issue. Very fantastic. Good. And and do keep in mind too that out in the yard, termites are totally normal. If we didn't have termites, the earth would probably be forty miles deep in dead wood. So I don't worry about them. When I see them out in the yard, when I'm walking around my ranch and I kick over an old stump and it's full of termites, hey, that's Mother Nature at work. They're only a problem when they get into our buildings, our structures where you know where we don't want them. So it's not something I recommend. Uh, and and I certainly. There are pest control companies out there that would make you think if you had a piece of board lying out in the yard and turned it over and there were termites and they need to come to a $1,000 treatment. No, it's, uh, it is perfectly normal to have some termites in the yard, but if they start causing damage to fences and structures, that's when we need to take action to get rid of them. Fantastic, sir. Your knowledge is unbelievable. I wish I had one-third of it. <laughs> well, I've been doing it a few years, and I've had some wonderful mentors over the years. So I've been a, a very blessed man in that regard, so I just enjoy sharing it with people. And uh, you get out and have a great weekend and go kill some termites. Thank you, sir, for Thanks. your time. Thank have a blessed day. Thank you, Glenn. You too. Bye. 
All right, let me get my last break of the hour out of the way here. We'll talk to Dolores and move down the list from there. I get to talk about Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. Sam's one of those people I love talking about, kind of like my harbor's friend David Vaughn, because uh, they always do it right. They always do it naturally. They stay away from the toxic products, but they do things that work. Sam has a business where he takes care of things like fertilizing, compost tea application, insect control, disease control, always with organic and natural products, but unlike the guys in the white trucks that are spraying some pretty toxic stuff and tying you to a <laughs> to a long-term contract, uh, with Sam, no long-term contracts. He's there to do the work that you need help with and uh, without long-term contracts, but with 30 years of knowledge backing him up, he knows how to get the job done, and he knows how to help you have the most beautiful landscape that uh, is in the neighborhood and and it just you know it's nice doing business with good people and i consider sam sitterly to be good people and he's helped so many people in this area with problems with their yards once again no long-term contracts always safe natural organic products and it's real easy check them out online at green grow spelled out g-r-o-w greengroworganics.com if you like what you see Call him, set up a no-cost, no-obligation appointment. He will look over the landscape with you, following all COVID guidelines, and uh, tell you what he sees that needs to be improved or could be improved. And then you decide how much of the work you want to do, how much you want him to do, and you move forward from there. It's Green Grow Organics. He's Sam Sitterly, and he's been doing this for about 30 years. Uh, check out online. When you're ready to give him a call, I believe it's uh, 732-8500, 210 area code. But uh, check him out. Good guy that'll solve a lot of problems for you. Green Grow Organics. All right. Well, let's see here. It looks like we are going to talk to Dolores and Glenn and uh, actually Dolores and Bob and Robin. Uh, do we still have Glenn on there? Uh, no, we just talked to Glenn. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, it's to be Dolores, Bob and Robin. And Dolores is first. Good morning, Dolores. Good morning, gardening guru. <laughs> How may I assist you in your quest for the answer to gardening uh, life these days? Oh, I can imagine you can do any of them. I have a, a Japanese oleander that was beautiful, full of leaves. You couldn't see through it. All of a sudden, it started dropping leaves, turning brown, and they fall off, or I pull them off, and the thing comes back to life. Okay. What's the matter with it? Does the browning start at the tip of the leaves, and then pretty soon the whole leaf is brown and falling off? Yes, sir. Okay, it probably is this disease that has started hitting uh, oleanders in about the past five years. It's called bacterial leaf scorch. And the so-called experts at the Extension Service will tell you there's no hope for it. Just pull it up and get rid of it and don't plant another one. We find that spraying with uh, hydrogen peroxide, just get your good old grocery store hydrogen peroxide. Yeah, uh, mix it about one part peroxide to two parts water. Spray it very thoroughly. Do that uh, two or three times over the period of two or three months. And we've seen a lot of them, you know, totally cured. But uh, if you want to look it up, the disease is called bacterial leaf scorch, but ignore the part that says you can't do anything about it. Okay. Um, it, it's coming back again now. It, it comes and goes. 
Yep. Well, ultimately, if you don't do something, it will ultimately kill the plant. But uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it is a serious disease. But uh, unlike the naysayers who say there's nothing you can do about it, it's, you know, it's, those are the same people that you said you can't do anything about oak wills, you can't do anything about some other problems that we found are quite curable. Um, and uh, the, the best thing we found is simply hydrogen peroxide, two-to-one water to hydrogen peroxide. Spray it thoroughly, make two or three sprayings a couple of weeks apart, and I think you'll find your oleanders recover very well. Wonderful. And this time of year, as it gets gets cooler, I can still do that. Absolutely, you do it whenever. But uh, I, I definitely, I definitely would get it done because this is a, the disease is serious enough that some of the big uh, oleander growers across the country have stopped growing oleanders totally. Mm-hmm. I've gotten to where I, I think that they're pretty here and there, but I'd never tell somebody to plant a privacy hedge of them or something like that because. Uh, uh, if you don't take care of them, the, if they get this disease, they, they will die. But uh, I still think they're great plants. I just don't uh, tell people don't don't build your landscape around them. Just use them here and there where yeah. they'll add that color. And uh, one of the few things the deer won't eat, the bugs won't bother very much. So uh, <laughs> I still like oleanders. Okay. And also, now, I have a live oak tree that's probably 8 to 10 feet tall, but it <laughs> It needs to be limbed up. I, I, you can't see the trunk, and I okay. want it to make it. I don't. I was listening to you speak to the lady earlier about uh, okay. the Lord. Yep. Well, here's here's the thing. Don't uh, don't skin it down to just the trunk because everywhere you have green foliage up and down the trunk, it's helping the trunk to grow more quickly in diameter. When I have a young tree mm-hmm. like that, every winter I go through and I cut all that little side growth that back to about four or five inches long. But I'm not going to take it all the way off until that trunk's about six inches in diameter. I'll end up with oh, a good. much weaker tree if I cut all those off. So don't let them make major limbs, but trim them back, but don't take them all the way off. Okay, that'll work for me because I like I want to see that trunk and see that it is making a tree. Oh it's yeah, been- it will. Be, be a little bit patient with it. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, here we are back to gardening once again. Uh, now that you know that the, <laughs> the most important things happening in the world are actually probably happening right in your own garden. So I hope you're going to get out and enjoy that today. We're going to talk to uh, Bob and Robin and Roger starting things out. And, uh, First up is a man with a very good name. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Bob. Yes, sir. I have a couple of questions for you. Okay. I I got given about four, two live oak and two red oak trees that are have been in a one-gallon uh, container for about a year. The okay. nursery was going out of uh, business, and they were given uh-huh. to a friend of mine, and they were passed over to me. Okay. When I take them out of there and put them in the ground, what do I need to do the root system? Because it's got to be root bound like there ain't no tomorrow. Well, the thing I'm most concerned about are what we call circling or girdling roots. So on a tree like that, I'm going to take my pruning shears and I'm just going to go straight down one side of the root ball, snip, snip, snip. Um, you will cut a bunch of roots. Some of them may be fair size, but in the long term, you're saving the tree's life. And uh, you picked exactly the right time of year to do it. Going into fall and winter months, this is the time we can do a little pr- root pruning where we need to. So uh, I, you know, 
know, like I say, I just go down one side of that root ball. The roots that are going to potentially cause problems, they're going to be the ones that are right at the outer edge of that root ball. You don't have to worry about digging down deeply into it. Just go down, you know, going maybe a quarter of an inch into the ball and just just cut every root that you come coming straight down one side, and uh, you'll be good to go. Okay. My second question is, I've got a little bit of Medina that I didn't use on my yard. Should I mix that a little bit with the dirt that I dig up and when I plant this? It's a fine idea. There's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. I think uh, whether you mix it with the dirt or whether you just sprinkle some of it in the bottom of the hole, it's uh, we're talking a dry growing green product, I imagine, and uh, it will never burn. It never causes any problems. So if you can mix some of it with the soil that goes back into the hole or if you simply want to you know, put some of it in the bottom of the hole, either way, the trees will thank you. Okay. Well, yeah, that's why I use the organic stuff is because I'm out in the country and I live on a water well, so we don't <laughs> we don't use it as dry as it. You know how that is. You live out. I in the live country. on a shallow water well. My water well is only about a hundred feet deep, and I have a old hand dug well uh, not too far from the house. It's only about thirty five feet deep. So I know about protecting our water. Believe me, for many different reasons. Uh, I'm the same way. Mine's one twenty, and I got an old hand dug there. Right here, there's probably about 30 or 40 also. <laughs> i got one more question for you right yes, quick. Yes, sir. Like. I would like to grow a Myers lemon. I know that I've got to try and protect it. I've got an old cattle trough or old water trough for cattle that's got holes in it. Uh-huh. I would like to plant it in that right outside my garden. How big do they get? Well, that's a great question. Um, most of the Myers lemons that you're going to buy are grafted on either sour orange rootstock or something called Carrizo rootstock, and they're going to grow about 15, 18 feet tall and maybe 10 feet wide. Occasionally, you will see one grown from a cutting that is more likely to make a bush than a tree, and it's not going to get probably more than 10 feet tall, but it's going to be very bushy. And occasionally, you will see what people will call a dwarf Meyer lemon. And in this case, it's simply a Meyer's lemon that's been grafted onto a special rootstock, happens to be called Flying Dragon, that... Uh, makes for it keeps the tree small but still gives you the big lemons so if you're if you're looking at uh one that's grafted on flying dragon if you're looking on a cutting grown one probably not going to get much over 10 feet tall if it's uh, on another root stock uh it's probably going to get somewhere around 15 feet tall okay well i'm just thinking that i'm probably going to have to protect it at one time or another from freezes and i yeah. would do that with a, you know a pvc type tarp type deal so that i'm not laying something right on it so that flying dragon is probably pretty much what i'm looking for well if you're going to go out and get one it's certainly the one that i would that i would be buying what what area are you in bump i'm uh about halfway between houston and san antonio and a little bit south the interstate 10 yeah, you're not gonna. You're not gonna. I, I'm a little worried that you might have been up in the hill country or Fredericksburg or somewhere like that. You're not gonna have to protect that tree often. I bet you it's not more than. You know, you may have winters when you don't have to protect it at all because Myers lemons can go down into the upper 20s. They can probably go as low as 26. And as long as it doesn't stay there for a long period of time, that's not an issue to them. So, 
Uh, you're probably not going to see more than two or three times a year, and you may see many years when you don't have to protect it at all. So uh, you're in a good area to grow Myers lemon. Well, that's a good thing. Well, thank you, sir. That's all I've got for right now, and I sure appreciate it. You get out and enjoy your Sunday, Bob. We'll talk again, and I'll move on next and talk to Robin. Good morning, Robin. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Are you there? I'm yeah. here. Okay. Uh, two questions. I have uh, a lantana that uh, when the flowers are finished, they're turning black. And mm-hmm. I see none of the little green uh, seed balls forming at all. Right. Just these black flowers. Okay. And I wonder what's going on. Well, I I would imagine, first of all, that you probably have, excuse me, a very common, uh, insect on there called the lace bug that uh, it'll all, it'll, it'll make the flower buds turn black and it will sometimes create kind of a silvery sheen to the foliage and the, the plant just won't look as healthy. Now, a lot of, in fact, I'd say, Oh, golly, probably 90% of the lantanas that are propagated these days don't make a lot of seed. That's one of the great strides forward. New Gold was the first one, but nowadays we've got, you know, 50 varieties that don't make much seed because they just bloom almost all the time. Has this plant made seed before? Is this the first year it hasn't made seed? Or uh, has it ever has it ever made a bunch of seeds? We've had a lot of problems with it. It had lace uh-huh. bug really bad last year, and we treated it, and um, we thought it, and the leaves look okay right now, but, um, uh-huh. the you know, I and I did not know that they had varieties that didn't make that little seed oh, yeah. pod now. I didn't yeah, probably 90, uh-huh. maybe, maybe as much as 98% of them are ones that don't make much seed. Um, if you're getting lace bug consistently, it tells me your lantana is a little stressed. You probably need to increase your fertilizing. You probably need to increase the frequency of watering. Uh, everybody talks about how drought-tolerant lantana is, and but what they don't really say is, oh, yeah, it'll survive a drought, but it won't look very good during a drought, and it will be much more susceptible to insect problems if you're letting it get too dry. So we're getting close to the time that it may freeze back for the winter anyway, but uh Next season, I would very definitely increase your fertilizing, increase your watering, and you probably never see a lace bug. Okay, great. Thank you. And one more question. I have this terrible-looking fungus that's coming up. It, it looks like a, uh, it's a brown, yucky-looking phallic <laughs> symbol type of thing. <laughs> it's terrible. Well, I, I'm going to tell you what a lot of people call that. They call it dog vomit fungus. <laughs> Because <laughs> that's kind of what it looks like. But uh, it's harmless. Uh, if you want to get rid of it, you can throw a little sulfur out. But it's it's uh, actually in the group of plants we call slime molds. And as ugly and disgusting as they look, they don't really do much damage. The only way they really cause any damage is they'll sometimes make kind of a crust that keeps the water from getting into the soil very evenly. But uh, they're a disgusting nuisance, but they're not really going to hurt your plants. So just wash them down with a hose, and if you want to sprinkle a little sulfur on them, they'll go away. Okay, and I usually have to dig it up. It's almost like it has roots. 
Well, it's, it's, it, yeah, it, it forms, its body is called a mycelium, and it makes uh, kind of root-like things that may be called hyphae, but uh, if you get it before it gets, you know, kind of that dead crusty point, uh, it's a lot easier to get under control. And like I say, the only real damage, and, and you've seen this, is that it just makes such a crust that uh, water just runs off rather than soaking through. So I wouldn't feel like you have to dig it out, but I would certainly break it up. I get in there with a, oh, a spading fork or, you know, even a rake or something like that. Just, in effect, chop some holes down through it so the water can get through. Uh, it's a little unusual to have it when it's as dry as it is right now, but uh, it's not anything that's going to take over the world and, and cause any huge problems to you. Is that something you would put in a compost pile? Wouldn't hurt anything. Wouldn't hurt anything at all. Okay. But we don't know that it's particularly beneficial. No, it's, it's. I don't think it's. I mean, well, it'll break down and it will add some good nutrients to it. It's not. It's not in the group that I would call, you know, a beneficial organism. But neither is it pathogenic. It's not disease causing. So uh, it's something to be dealt with, but nothing to get panicked over. Okay. Well, good. Thank you so much for all you do. Have a wonderful it's, day. <laughs> You do the same, Robin, and I sure appreciate the call this morning. All right, I guess I better do a quick break here. Roger will be up next when we uh, get through with this little break, but I get to talk to you about the Cedar Eater of Texas. And uh, once again, I just love talking about good people and uh, have known Stan Hagener and the folks at the Cedar Eater for a lot of years. I've known so many people that have used their services, and uh, I see places all the time where I live in the hill country where literally one day I'm driving by a property that is just choked with second growth ash juniper and I go by there a day later and hey the land's opened up there's a nice layer of mulch on the ground all the oaks are out there the escarpment cherries all the native trees are saying oh thank you so much and uh, uh, it's truly amazing how much area they can cover really in a single day and they do it so environmentally friendly they go through and cut the cedar off at ground level the machine does and then grinds it into a nice mulch all in one operation they can do acres and acres in a single day if you have a lot of uh, tight growth around the beneficial trees they'll send in a hand clearing crew that will cut those cedars drag them out in the open where the machine can grind them into mulch too if you're looking to restore good health to your land if you're looking to take care of probably the biggest problem we have in the country well you need to call the cedar eater of texas 210-745-2743 i'll mention once again too if you're down in south texas wanting to clear those senderas they can do miles and miles in just one day 210-745-2743 for the cedar eater of texas all right looks like we're going to talk to roger and chris and charles and roger's up first good morning roger yes good morning bob good to talk good morning. with you i i just first want to uh, let you know how much we appreciate you giving up your Sunday mornings for us. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure, and uh, no offense to my good friends back at the radio station, but I kind of enjoy, and, you know, the, the dogs you hear barking in the background, and occasionally the cattle have something to say. I'm sitting here looking out the window of our nursery at, uh, at just a beautiful, uh, beautiful setting, so uh, it's not a bad way to spend a Sunday morning. Uh, I, I will admit I'd rather be fishing somewhere with my fly rod in the high country, but that country's getting too cold now. So uh, I'm glad to be here for you, but I appreciate the compliment. 
Well, that's America. That's America. Yes, um, I'm calling on behalf of my wife. Um, I get a couple questions. Well, probably three. Uh, snails. Um, we have just have an abundance of snails. We've tried your your beer. Um, uh-huh. That doesn't work, um, and they seem to just uh, flourish. What can we do to get rid of them? Well, describe the snails to me. Do they look kind of like an ice cream cone? Do they have a drawn-out spiral shell, or are they more kind of a big, round, uh, you know, a, a great big snail? What, what does the shell look like? It's a, it's a small, round shell. It's not a large one. Now, my grandson, he's got huge ones. But yeah. ours now, is, are is your is yours round and flat, or is it kind of? Uh, would it remind you of an ice cream cone turned on side? No, it's it's round and flat. Okay, well, those are ones we need to get rid of. The 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 ice cream cone looking ones; those are actually beneficial, and they do very little damage to your plants. They're called the collet scales, uh, snails. But what you're looking at are called bush snails, and uh, they are damaging. And there is a non-toxic bait that you can put out for them, and it's called Sluggo. Uh, I like the one called Sluggo Plus because they've had something to it that uh, kills pill bugs as well. But uh, Sluggo Plus, it's a granule. You sprinkle it around. It's harmless to people and pets, but it is really good against all kinds of damaging snails. Sounds good. Um, next question. We uh, were given four chickens. Um, and we retired, so we're enjoying them. Um, my wife is enjoying them more than I am. But anyway, um, for a, a bedding, uh, she's been using pine shavings. Uh, she likes to use the manure in the garden, but wondering if that is the best bedding because she puts that in the garden. You know, about 11 o'clock, the best veterinarian I have ever known in my life is going to be sitting here next to me. And uh, he lives right on the edge of Alamo Heights and has a backyard full of chickens, too. So let me ask Dan. I have always heard that uh, uh, cedar shavings were were good as bedding. But uh, uh, let me ask the man who would be the real expert on there. Uh, it's fine for the garden. I mean, I, I can't tell you whether it's the best bedding for the chickens. But it's a great way to uh, kind of allow that uh, that manure to break down a bit. Uh, chicken manure is very hot. You wanna you want it to be aged a little bit and mixed in with uh, you know some of that pine bedding is uh, uh, you know a great way to go. But let me ask Dan uh, uh, if there's a better material to use for chickens. Okay, so pine uh, pine shavings is fine for the garden. Um, oh, yeah. it, I know it. It takes a while to break down, but we just want to make sure of that. Well, see, here's the thing, and uh, is that if you're just using pine shavings, I would tell you that you need to put in some extra fertilizer because they'll steal a little bit of nutrient in the process of breaking down. But voila, you've already mixed a ton of fertilizer in with those pine shavings in the form of the droppings the chickens leave behind. So uh, uh, it's kind of an ideal garden. Garden products. Okay. I'd, I, I would. Uh, I, I think you're fortunate to have it, and I think you probably grow an even better garden because of it. So, uh, okay. uh, yeah, I don't see any issues there at all. Okay. One other question. Well, two other, but I'll make them short. We have the white flies uh, mm-hmm. in her in her greenhouse uh, uh-huh. last year. They just got on everything. Now, uh, we used a dormant oil when I fooled around with a garden. 
Um, and that seemed to knock them down for a while. But uh, And now they're out in the garden in the broccoli and cabbage. Uh, uh, what can we use to get rid of them little white flies? I, I use a product called Spinosad Soap. And uh, dormant oil, is just problem with that is it'll burn a lot of different things if it's not really cold when you put it out. The spinosad soap is much easier to use. It's totally safe for you, and it's effective against aphids and white fly and uh, even works against caterpillars, although it has to come in contact. So uh, I, for the garden, I would suggest uh, getting, it's just called spinosad soap. And uh, it'll do a very good job at knocking them down. In your greenhouse, I'm going to tell you, you need to either put a fan in, or if you already have a fan, you need to put a bigger fan in. Because if you keep lots of air moving around in that greenhouse, you're not likely to have white fly. But if it gets, uh, if there's sort of stagnant air in there, man, the white flies will drive you crazy. So you can probably yeah. prevent the problem in the greenhouse with a little more air movement. But out in the garden, I'll be going with spinosad soap. Okay, it has fans in it, so we'll make sure they run. Uh, one last question. I'm a Yankee that moved down here 15 years ago, and I know just about all of the trees in the Adirondacks, but my wife picked up some acorns yesterday at a place that was with my daughter, and they look like they came from the Garden of Eden. What <laughs> kind of tree is it that grows those big acorns? It's most likely, in this area, it's most likely a burr oak. Uh, very good tree, long-lived tree, resistant to oak wilt. Um, there now we we also if you get away from San Antonio, you'll see some post oaks and blackjack oaks that are really more the wimp of the tree family, and they have some issues. But if you're finding those in the San Antonio area, they're almost certainly a bur oak, and they are an excellent tree. If you decide to plant and grow any of these, be sure and put some chicken wire or something over the pots because the cute little bushy-tailed tree rat that people call a squirrel, uh, they will dig that up and think they've just found Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, so if you're starting something in pots, be sure you put something over them so the squirrels can't get to them. Or I, I, I laugh because uh, my business partner planted some many years ago before she was even my business partner. And the squirrels cleaned out about a dozen pots, stole every acre in, uh, in one night, so or in one day. So uh, uh, do be aware that uh, they would like to have those for dinner. But no, they're a great tree. I, you know, and I don't. I, I like seeing a lot of diversity in the canopy. I'd never fill up a yard with bur oaks, but uh, uh, I planted two of them recently in my yard, and I'll probably plant another couple of them because I have a very large yard, and uh, I think they're an excellent tree. All right. Well, thank you very much, Bob, for your time, and uh, we are much appreciated. Well, it's my pleasure, Roger. Appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. Go You're on. welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take one more call. I believe that would be Chris would be up next. Good morning, Chris. Hey, good morning, Bob. How are you doing this morning? I'm fantastic. How about you? Doing great. Just heading back from a little fishing trip. As uh, I heard you mention fishing earlier. So, <laughs> Where, really, where'd you go? Uh, we were down in uh, Bluffs Landing, so down in Corpus. So just headed back okay. up to Verde. Very good. Yep. Well, I just had a quick question on a live oak. Uh, okay. About three weeks ago, every leaf in a span of maybe 24 to 48 hours just turned brown. And a lot of them have fallen. Um, they're not really sticking to the branch or anything, but it's uh, it's what's concerning to say the least. The other live oaks around it are 
are perfectly fine. They got all their leaves still, so I didn't know if there was anything okay. to be concerned about. Is this a, an established tree? Is this a newly planted yes, tree? It's no, sir. It's, it's, it's probably at least 20 years old. Okay. Well, I would, I, I would definitely be concerned. Uh, that's. Uh, Excuse me, that's not oak wilt. Oak wilt is a much slower process. It, it's not a good sign. Uh, is this? Is it a very big tree? Is it taller than the other trees in the area? Is there anything to say no, about this tree? No, and it's it's got a it's the it it kind of hangs around under the canopy of a few other live oak trees. Okay. So I didn't okay. know if that might be a concern. Well, if it were, if you told me it was a bigger tree, I'd tell you it could have been a lightning strike, because I've seen a lightning strike, you know, do that to a tree. Sometimes kills a tree. Sometimes it comes back out. A lot of oaks are dropping a lot of leaves prematurely this year, and uh, my arborist friends tell me always be concerned with what's on the tree, not what's on the ground. But if this tree has lost every leaf, um. Uh, you know, something is very definitely happening that's not good with the tree. But I, it, it doesn't sound like oak wilt. It doesn't sound like anything that would be spreading from one tree to another. It sounds more like something that's probably building, been building up for a while, some sort of damage to the tree, possibly girdling by porcupine or something like that that's just, you know, in effect, finally caught up with the tree. So uh, there's nothing... Really, in particular, I would tell you to do except examine it very closely, especially down toward the base. And uh, have you tried bending the limbs? Do they have any green to them, or are they dry and brittle at this point? I did. They're still pretty green. Um, You know, they're they're okay. And I've noticed nothing around the 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 flare, so I didn't I Uh didn't mulch. Um, They they get ample water. You know, I wouldn't say they're overwatered. So, but they get ample. I didn't mulch this year. They're not, you know, the the flare is perfectly fine. Uh, I've had issues with. We had a we had to have a lace bark elm removed. Uh, that was an odd odd tree to have in that backyard, but it grew really well for a period of time. But then it just it just died almost instantaneously. Just that I guess it was two years ago after we got a really hard freeze uh, late uh-huh. in the year or earlier earlier on in the in the late late in the winter so and uh, all the leaves fell off and i figured it'd come back but it didn't come back but it had a fair amount of root girdling on it uh, yeah but yeah. there's there some mushrooms that are growing out out within the tree line you know between the trunk uh-huh. and the tree line so i'm not sure if that might you know be a symptom of an issue so as far well, as that's a that, that would be an that would be an after the fact thing because the mushrooms are just the fruiting body of the uh, little beneficial fungus that that eats that destroys dead roots, but it, they're not something that hurts the tree, you know, in advance, so to speak. Um, the one other place that I have seen that happen to a tree uh, was somewhere where someone, without knowing it, had a leak in their gas line, and uh, you know, I don't know. In this case, these were people at a you know natural gas yard light, and they got a leak in that line and had a couple of trees where. It was leaking right around the base of the tree. The tree just folded up and died almost overnight. So that's, you know, not a likely thing. But um, if you if you have natural gas, if you have that in the area, uh, you might definitely have that line looked at. Um, and 
but beyond that, it just it doesn't sound like a tree. It doesn't sound like a disease. No, it was it was. I mean, to have to have the other live oak trees that are much more uh, established, you know, be perfectly fine. And there's one next to it that's not really that much more established. It's you know three four feet away uh, to have yeah. it be okay. It's just a really interesting situation. I don't know if there's an arborist in particular in San Antonio that you'd recommend or somebody. Oh, I, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in fact, I've already given out his name and number once this morning. But the guy that I trust uh, is uh, a fellow named David Vaughn. And um, he he used to work my, for my friends at Edder Tree Care. And uh, I think when he turned 70, he said, I don't have to work this hard. So he does strictly consulting. <laughs> But uh, he's he's the guy that teaches the courses that other arborists have to take if they want to become certified arborists, and just an incredibly nice guy and, and a good fisherman <laughs> too. So you probably, uh, uh, although he's more freshwater than saltwater. But uh, if you want to give David a call, I know uh, he'd be happy to talk to you. And uh, uh, his number is t- well. There, do you have somebody? I don't want you to be trying to ride while you're driving. Um, yes, sir. Somebody, you, somebody, you have somebody next to me. Phone in hand. Okay. All right. Well, uh, area code 210. Phone number is 788-4986. That's 788-4986, area code 210. And uh, <laughs> you guys can talk fishing and talk trees. There you go. Well, I'd love to have him out and just take a look or give me some guidance on who I might be able to talk to because I would really not like to or not prefer to remove, prefer not to remove this tree. Well, again, he doesn't do the removal, so the only thing he has to sell you is knowledge. So he's not going to talk you into something that you don't need. And uh, like I say, he's a guy I trust. He's a guy I call if I ever have a question or a problem. So uh, tell him I said hello. I will do. Thank you very much, Bob. Uh, As I'll echo the previous caller, I really appreciate (laughs) what you do and uh, appreciate you taking time out of your Sunday to do this. Well, as I said earlier, I'd rather be fishing, but this would be the second most enjoyable thing. So I'm happy to be here for you. You get out and have a good uh, weekend, Chris, and uh, tight lines to you, and we'll uh, we'll talk again. Let me let me get a break out of the way here, and we'll be right back. We'll start with Charles when we come back, and uh, I get to talk to you about Fanix Nursery and Garden Center, and. Uh, Fanix is just doing all sorts of fun things like they always do. You know, they're they're more than a nursery now. They're carrying the Traeger pellet grills and all the accessories. They're carrying the Eco uh, battery-powered equipment nowadays. They are so well-stocked on trees, too. Uh, CPS Energy has that green shade rebate program going on where plant the trees uh, in, in a proper area around your home. CPS Energy will give you $50 credit per tree up to, uh, I think, a maximum seven trees, something like that. But anyway, they're practically buying the trees for you. And Fanix just wants you to know that they are well-stocked on trees and uh, that they comply very much. They have, a, they have a list of trees you need to choose among, but uh, they are certainly... <laughs> they are certainly well stocked and there are lots of different trees to choose from. Um, they also want to remind you that they uh, have the saws coupon plants and they have, oh gosh, pop-up greenhouses to help you get uh, into the winter months So uh, when you're going to have to cover some things occasionally. Fanix is ready for the season and they're ready for you to come see them. They're open seven days a week. They're located over on Home Green Road, uh, right where they've been for over 80 years. Fully stocked with organic gardening supplies, fertilizer and mulch and compost. Like I say, after 80 years, you know they're good people doing a good job at Fanix Nursery and Garden Center. 
All right, on this beautiful Saturday morning, uh, it's time now to visit with Charles. Good morning, Charles. Hi, Charles. I have, I have four questions. Can you okay. hear me? Just fine. I have, I have four questions about pecan trees. You okay. mentioned yesterday that you were growing some pecan trees on your property. How many pecan trees do you have? What varieties of pecan trees do you have? Which varieties produce the most nuts? And what is the brand name of any fertilizer you use on them? Okay. Well, um, I... I uh, I have, oh golly, I probably have maybe 40 or 50 pecan trees on my property, but I did not plant a single one of them. Um, you know, my property's been in the family for, oh, since the late 1800s, and um, some of them are grafted trees, some of them are native trees. So I will share with you what I feel are the best trees that I have helped friends with. Uh, but the trees that are on my property were were planted long before I was alive for the most part, and uh, most of them are the native trees. A few of them are grafted, uh, and I think they're probably some of them are the old Stewart, uh, and there are some, some better trees out there now. But, uh, I mean, on the market now, but I, I really, it's not like a pecan orchard that I planted myself. But if I were planting today, um, I can tell you that the commercial orchard people plant usually at least half their orchards in a variety called desirable uh, because desirable is one of the most prolific and most dependable producers out there the desirable is an excellent variety of pecan uh, like everything else uh, it does have one negative quality and that is the woods a little brittle and some years it'll get so loaded up with pecans I've seen you know good sized limbs just break but where you're looking for a really productive pecan tree like I say most commercial growers plant at least half of their uh, pecan groves uh, with desirable other very good varieties mohawk is a tree that doesn't get just huge which makes it more suitable for a, a, an in in town size yard so many pecan trees i mean one tree would just dominate the entire property mohawk is an excellent paper shell pecan that produces very well that doesn't get just you know oversized uh, there's a variety called Sioux, S-I-O-U-X, like the Indian tribe. Um, uh, Sioux is a very good variety of uh, pecan. Uh, Choctaw, C-H-O-C-T-A-W, I believe is the uh, correct spelling on it, uh, is also a very good pecan tree. I can't say all of the pecan varieties uh, with the Indian names are good because there are a couple of them, like Wichita, that are a little more susceptible to a disease called pecan scab fungus. But Mohawk, Choctaw, Cheyenne, uh, Sioux, those are all very good varieties, uh, dependable producers, and uh, thin-shell pecans. And uh, uh, I, I would be happy if I were planting more pecan trees, I would be happy with any of those. But I've, I've got what? pecan trees that are probably the diameter on those trunks is uh, is four feet across. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they're, they're trees that were around a long time before I came along. What Do you fertilize them? You know, I occasionally have fertilized uh, this field, and they benefit from it. 
I like, you know, the same basic growing green fertilizer that Medina makes. Uh, I don't think you can find a better fertilizer. Guys that are doing the, the synthetic chemical fertilizers, they're always running into zinc deficiencies and having to provide extra zinc for the trees. But uh, I've never had that issue. Uh, you know, I think uh, something like Medina's growing green, or for that matter, Nature's Creation's got one they call premium lawn food. Both of those are fortified with extra iron and zinc and basically everything a pecan tree would need. Uh, they are non-burning. They don't have to be watered in. So uh, um, those, uh, those are what I use pretty much across the board, not just around the pecans, but, uh, you know, I have peaches and plums and uh, a few other trees as well. And that's, that's my general go-to fertilizer. Okay. Uh, one more question. Do you have any persimmon plants growing on your property? Well, yes and no. Uh, there are two trees that are commonly called persimmons. We have a native persimmon that uh, produces a relatively small blackish fruit. Uh, makes pretty good wine. Some people make jelly out of it. Um, but it's, uh, they, they can be invasive. They can be a bit of a nuisance. The second general type of persimmon would be what we call an Asian persimmon or sometimes called a Korean persimmon. They are much larger. Uh, the fruit is, uh, when it's ripe, it's just a golden yellow color. When it's green, it is highly astringent. It would pucker you unbelievably to try to eat them green. When they are ripe, they are one of the most delicious fruits you will ever eat. But um, I, I recommend virtually all of uh, the Asian persimmons. Uh, they have names like Taninashi, Fuyu, F-U-Y-U, is a really good one. Uh, there's one called Eureka, which is a really good one. Um, but, uh, yeah, those, Hachia, H-A-C-I-Y-A, Hachia is another very good one. Uh, those are all excellent trees. They're a little more slow growing than something like a peach tree, but they will live for a hundred years and, uh, they very, very dependable producers. And like I say, you have to let the tree ripen. You have to let the fruit ripen. And when they do, sometimes they don't ripen until late enough in the fall that all the leaves have fallen off and it just like, looks like little jack lanterns hanging all over the tree but uh they they are an excellent tree and as long as you have reasonable soil they do very well in this area and i would fertilize them with the same growing green or uh, premium lawn food either one of those are going to do really well for them as well okay well thank you very much and you have a really great uh gardening program i just love it well i appreciate that and i appreciate you calling this morning charles i hope you'll do it again anytime i can help thank you so much Okay, okay, bye. Cool. Goodbye. All right, let me get my last break of the hour out of the way, and then we'll talk to Mike and Wayne and Liz, and I get to talk to you for a moment about my friends at Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And, again, I don't talk about people unless I know them. <laughs> In the case of Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, I was so glad that I found them probably close to 20 years ago. At that time, I needed a new roof on my home, and they did a beautiful job. My home is a little complex. It's a 110-year-old house with three chimneys and balcony rounds, three sides upstairs, lots of hips and valleys. 
man, they gave me a wonderful price on it. They did the work quickly, and I've not had to call them back one single time. Not one, never even a minor leak. My roof's been through hail. It's been through high winds. Had a tornado go through pretty close to the property. Didn't bother mine at all. I have lightning rods on my home, and when they put the metal roof on, they not only took them off carefully, they actually called bonded lightning protection and had them come back and do the reinstallation just to be sure the job was perfect. We have Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof on Shades of Green here that stood up to baseball-sized hail with no damage. So many friends and uh, just everybody. The two comments that I hear about them is, I love my roof, and the second one is, I didn't know it would be so reasonably priced. If you want to put on the last roof you will ever put on your home, you want to save money on your energy bill every month, if you want a discount on your homeowner's insurance for most companies, well, you need to get a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof, and you can learn a lot more by giving them a call at 210-822-6868. That's 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. All right, let's get back to the phone lines and get back to gardening. It's going to be Mike and Wayne and Liz, and Mike is up first. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm fantastic. How about you today? <laughs> I'm pretty good just uh, in the parking lot of the golf course fixing to go out and play. <laughs> well, I was just talking to my engineer a few minutes ago, and uh, we were talking about the fact how about 150 years ago, Mark Twain described the game of golf as a good walk spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> and so, isn't that true? Isn't that yeah, true? it's uh, it's. Uh, but then I, I won't tell you about the other one that I saw on a wall in a production studio in Florida one time. But great game if you've got the time to play it. And uh, but it will it will teach you patience and uh, it'll teach you humility. So I uh, I hope you're on on your game today and uh, you take your your uh, friend's money away from him. How's that? I'll try. I'll try. So I, well, what can I help you with today? I've got a backyard full of Tiff Bermuda, and it's been there about 10 years. And now it looks like it's being invaded by a kind of a low-growing weed. It's kind of it's shovel-shaped, and it's got little yellow flowers on it. And it's yeah, it's called killing uh, my Bermuda. It's well, it's called. Uh, if you don't like it, you call it straggler daisy. If you like it, you call it horse herb. You need to mow a little more often. You need to fertilize a little bit more often because tiff is one Bermuda grass that, well, that's what you're going to be walking around on the greens out there. So uh, it it can stand being mowed low, whereas that horse herb cannot stand low mowing. And um, unless your yard's gotten shady, uh, the tiff Bermuda with a little fertilizer, a little bit of water will totally choke that out. There's nothing, there are no say, sprays that are, safe to use on it in the summer months now uh, one thing about your tiff is the first heavy frost this fall your tiff's going to turn brown uh, that horse herb is probably going to stay green and when that happens you can go through there and spray with your orange oil and vinegar and kill the horse herb back but uh, you have to wait till the tiff browns out before you can do that because orange oil and vinegar won't won't hurt brown grass but it will hurt anything that's got green foliage so um, those are going to be my three suggestions mow lower uh, fertilize probably a little bit more often with a good organic fertilizer and after we get the first couple of frosts go through and spray with vinegar and orange oil and you should knock it back to the point you'll be totally rid of it next year good well thanks bob and good luck with your game today <laughs> i appreciate the call mike <laughs> thank you so much he always wins okay <laughs> very <Bye-bye>. good <laughs> all right sir well moving along let's see here wayne is up next good morning wayne Good morning, Bob. Hi, I was, morning, sir. Hey, I've, 
I've got some uh, I've come up for my weekly or biweekly uh, instructional cuttings. Okay. <laughs> I uh, have, have been uh, using perlite, and I had, was making some progress, and then I started getting some some I guess it's some molding or some weak plants. Basically, started rotting. It looked like from the bottom, and I'm thinking it's probably just because I must have been watering, uh, been spritzing too much. I've got everything in a 1020 tray with packs and i've got a dome over it it's mm-hmm. got some venting but but uh but the, the, i'm starting to see some rotting of these plants and you know some what, of what, them are, have been in there for about four weeks okay what what kind of plants are we trying to uh root wayne uh lantana shrimp plants uh, uh basically those are two good ones i mean the lantana shrimp plant and how much light have you got your propagating tray in I've got them sitting in a uh, right next to a window uh, up in my uh, up in my attic. Okay, I would move them outside. Um, it's just indoors. Uh, it's hard to get enough light, and they do like some air circulation. Having a dome over them, just venting is not enough. They. You know, if I were going to try to do it indoors, I'd actually have a bigger area, and I'd have a little fan blowing on them. Um, I don't think it has much to do with the water, because water doesn't hurt anything. Lack of oxygen is what hurts things. And the perlite is so open that you're never... I mean, the commercial growers, uh, people like one I'll be seeing tomorrow, and they've got a greenhouse that's probably 100 by 100 feet that's all mist benches, and their misters come on uh, 10, 15 times a day in the warm weather. So uh, I don't think we're looking at water issues, but much more likely we've got an issue with not enough air circulation and not enough light. Uh, be sure, okay. and I'm sure you do this, but strip the lower leaves off. But uh, until yes, it gets really chilly, I would have those cuttings outside rather than inside. And actually, best of all worlds, unless we're really getting down close to freezing, would have them outside with a propagating mat. If you had the tops cool and the and the lower stems and the perning uh, rooting medium warm. Uh, that's that's what the big guys that do millions of color cuttings. That's what they aim for. Okay. All right. Well, then I'll make those changes and uh, hopefully I'll be able to report back good stuff to you in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, it it won't happen overnight, but uh, I really pretty sure that's the only thing that you've got going on. I I don't think it's excessive water, but. Uh, uh, you're never going to have too much air circulation as long as you're not blowing the cuttings out of the medium. They want as much air circulation as they can possibly get. And uh, short of blazing hot sunlight, they want it to be really, really bright. And uh, I've seen what you're seeing, and it's always really just a matter of uh, stale air and uh, too little light, and those are both very correctable problems. Very good. I appreciate it, Bob. You have a good weekend. You do the same, Wayne. So it's good to talk to you. Thank you, sir. And goodbye. All right, only about 60 seconds till news time. So, Liz, I'm going to make you up first after the news. I'm going to remind everybody else, uh, in addition to fertilizing, uh, we're still seeing some late grubworm activity. If you've seen June bugs around late in the year, 
might consider one more application of beneficial nematodes. I put them out about two weeks ago because I had a flea issue. Uh, no more fleas, I can tell you that. Usually when I treat for fleas, it's like two, three years before I have to treat again. But uh, uh, nothing wrong with putting out some beneficial nematodes this time of year. And keep in mind, most plants do not want to be pruned at this time of year because you run the risk of creating a bunch of tender new growth coming out that would then freeze back. So pretty much prune, put away the pruning shears, especially for any major pruning. It is a fine time to prune trees if you need to, but remember, only trees that you need to seal the wounds on are live oaks and that whole group of trees we call red oaks. Other trees, it actually slows down healing rather than speed it up, so don't let anybody tell you pruning paint's a good thing. It's absolutely necessary on those two types of oaks, but other things, just leave it in the tool chest. And uh, oh, so much more to tell you. We'll do that after news here on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. Well, once again, we are back to gardening. And uh, man, it's just such a such a nice Saturday morning. I love this kind of uh, time of year when uh, you get up and you may have to put a long sleeve shirt on that you'll probably be shedding before the day's over. And I love the fact they're actually giving us a decent chance of rain uh, a little bit later this week because that's, that's the one complaint is we are so dry. We very, very definitely need uh, uh, need some rain, but uh, the temperatures going to be chillier next week. If you've got things outside like Chinese evergreens or Diefenbachias or Oh, the true aurelias like your chicken gizzard and your ming trees and things like that, they very definitely need to come in. Uh, if you've got flowering plants like apicias, uh, if you have your phalaenopsis outside, catleas can take what's coming next week. But phalaenopsis and vandas, those guys really going to need to come inside. So take a look at all the things that you may have on your porch and patio because this is really the first time this season we're looking at some weather that's going to be cool enough that it could potentially cause a problem for some of those plants. But anyway, enough of me. I'm more interested in what is on your mind. So we're going to talk to Liz and Ezel and John, and Liz is up first. Good morning, Liz. Good morning. How are you, Bob? I'm wonderful. How are you today? Well, I'm a little worried about some of my plants that I've gotten to where they look decent because I don't have a green thumb. <laughs> well, I once so heard I a green thumb is, you. well, I'm here to help you. How can I help? Well, um, I have a poinsettia that has been doing really good through the summer mm-hmm. and fall, and it's real green with the aloe vera and a firm asparagus and a prayer plant. And I wanted uh-huh. to know, now that the weather's going to get cooler, what, what should I do? Do I bring them inside? Do I keep them out there? Or what do I do with them? Well, everything you mentioned can certainly go down near freezing without any damage. Uh, your asparagus fern will actually go below freezing without damage. Uh, the most uh-huh. important thing that you do with your poinsettia this time of year is to be certain that it's not getting any light at night. You don't want it sitting near a porch light or anywhere that the lights are going to be on at night because the thing mm-hmm. that makes a poinsettia turn color around Christmas time is going from long days to short days. And poinsettias have a very specific way, it's called a phytochrome system, of measuring how long the day length is. And if you have them near a porch light or something, they're going to think it's July and they're never going to turn red or pink or white or whatever the appropriate color is. So be sure that your poinsettia 
is uh, you know is in an area that it gets the normal day length. If you have to bring it inside, then you either have to keep it in a sunny room where you don't turn on the lights in the evening, or some people will actually put them in the closet every afternoon, bring them back out the next morning. But having those uh, those long nights and short days, that's what's going to make your poinsettia color up as we get closer to Christmas time. But uh, your aloe will have to come in when it freezes, but not until it freezes. And uh, same way with your poinsettia. I would protect your poinsettia from any real strong winds because poinsettias are a little brittle. And uh, I've seen them sometimes get broken up in the wind. But, no, just keep up your watering. Uh, get a good plant food like has to grow or something like that. And be uh, fertilizing them regularly. But uh, just keep on doing what you're doing. It sounds like you're doing fine. Your thumb's getting greener all the time. Yeah, and it's getting bigger. So should I move it or leave it still in the same pot? It's gotten pretty big, the poinsettia. I would probably wait until spring to repot it. I don't want you to shock it at all right now when it's thinking about uh, putting on all this beautiful uh, holiday color. So um, I tend to do my my uh, repotting right in the end of winter, just as I'm bringing things out when they're getting ready to put on their spring growth. So it won't hurt to repot it if you want to, but if it were mine, I'd wait and do it in the spring. Okay. Okay. Also, uh, my other question is, uh, I've had some perennials that I bought. They were small, and they died on me because the area was not really sunny. They they would get sun in the morning, and then uh, later on it was shady, so not really that much sun. Well, there are perennials that will be happy in that situation. Uh, shrimp plant should do well in that situation. Uh, there are some salvias that take a lot of sun, but there are other salvias that are happy in the shade. There's one they call eyelash sage. I was just looking at those out back yesterday. Bright red flowers. Uh, eyelash how do you, sage do how well do you spell in, that one? Uh, like your eyelashes? It's uh-huh. just eyelash, oh. eyelash sage. I oh, won't even okay. try to spell okay. this proper are name. Are they salvia. bushes? Yes. Yes, they're low bushes. Uh-huh. So that's what I wanted. Um, do they come back every year? They usually don't even freeze down, but if they do, they come right back. Yeah, because um, I wanted something that's colorful, that's a bushy plant that come sure. back every year well, because, uh, yeah, there's, and the, it's kind of shady a little bit. Yeah, there's another beautiful plant which is called fire spike. Now don't confuse it with fire bush. Fire bush needs the sun, but fire spike, properly called odontonema, it's just starting to come into flower. It blooms with big spikes of red flowers. There's also a pink form, but the most common one is red. Fire spike is another beautiful green shrubby plant. Now it will freeze down most winters, but it comes right back out in the spring, but it is very happy in the shade. Mm-hmm. Do they attract butterflies? I wanted something that attracts butterflies. Well, yes, they do, but now the fire spike in particular doesn't really start blooming until fall, and most of the butterflies are kind of moving on through. We don't get as many butterflies in the middle of the winter, but uh, they do, and the salvia eyelash uh, sage attracts butterflies, and the shrimp plant attracts butterflies and hummingbirds. Um, oh, good. There's, another, there's another salvia they call tropical sage, salvia coccinia. 
Uh, it is one, my business partner had one in her yard, and uh, she lives on acreage as well. And uh, now it's just little bright red flowers coming up in the little uh, area outside her fence, but around her home it just is coming up everywhere, and it blooms all summer with red flowers. So tropical sage is uh, another one of those salvias that will freeze down but comes back every year. Oh, okay, yeah, because I noticed I have some sun in the morning, not that much, and then it's shady. So those perennials really didn't grow. They died on me. It well, was there, three of them. There are, lots of, there are lots of perennials that need some, but the ones I'm telling you about, these are perennials that are happy in the shade. So just be oh, sure okay. you're getting your plants, not at the grocery store, but for some, somebody that can tell you which ones like the shade because they're perennials that uh, they'll just thrive in your yard. We've just mentioned a few of them, uh, but uh, okay. uh, these things should do very, very well for you. Okay. My last question is, uh, what should I put on the grass that has some dried up grass with brown spots? Uh, They've never done really good. There's a certain area that keeps doing that. I would put some good organic fertilizer and put some compost, but uh, at some point next spring, we ought to try to figure out whether you've got fungus or grub worms. Uh, Not normal to have brown spots, and there's usually a cause for it. But in general, in the fall, I recommend uh, just a good organic fertilizer and then a thin layer of compost over those areas to help the grass come back. And the name brand? Uh, There are several good ones. My two favorites are Medina and Nature's Mm -hmm. Creation. Medina makes one called Growing Green. Nature's Creation makes one called Premium Lawn Food. Both of them are organic. Both of them can be used 365 days a year, and neither one of them has to be watered in. They don't really go to work until they get water, but, you know, the synthetic chemical types, you better be watering them in or they're going to burn things. Neither one of these will burn. You can just wait for the rain or you can just water it on your next cycle. There's no rush to have to run out and water. And that should take care of the of the brown or, or dried up well, I can't tell you that. I can't tell you that without knowing what caused the brown spots. But it will certainly oh, okay. help the grass stay green and it will help it grow back into those damaged areas. Okay. Do I put it now or do I wait till a certain time? Uh, wait till I'm off the air and Dr. Kirby's show is finished. I'd wait till at least noon. <laughs> I'm teasing you, Liz. You can put it on any time. Now is a great time to do it. There's no reason to wait, but uh, uh, but, but do stay stay close to the radio until we finish the radio shows, and then, then you can go get your fertilizer and put it on. Okay. Going back real quick, on those that you told me, the trim, the eyelash sage, and fire spike, do you water them once you plant them every day or every other day? Well, you water them very thoroughly when you can stick your finger in the soil and it's dry, good and dry, about an inch deep. Uh, I can't tell you every day or every other day because if it's hot and windy, you're going to have to water more often. If it's cloudy and chilly, you're not going to have to water as often. So when you water, water thoroughly, and then just periodically mm-hmm. go out and feel the soil at the base of the plant. If it feels like it's drying out, it's time to water again. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so very much, Bob. You have a blessed day. You do the same. Always a pleasure visiting with you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Certainly. Goodbye. All right. Well, it's already 10:16. He's Ellen John. Let me let me get a break out of the way here and I'll be right back with you guys. I get to talk about Wild Birds Unlimited 
And, you know, shouldn't be flowers is the only beautiful thing out in your yard. If you like wildlife, you would be amazed at the beautiful color and life you can bring in with the different birds. Whether, whether it's the hummingbirds in the summer, whether it's those beautiful orioles that migrate through, whether it's the American goldfinches that come in and spend the winter with us. There are just a lot of things that will really add life and color to your yard. Wild Birds Unlimited is... Uh, the one store in town where you're always going to get good advice and top quality products. Uh, they have the uh, certainly the best feeders there. Uh, they even have some that have what's called a silver iodide uh, technology built in that keeps the seed from molding and going bad, in, bad inside the feeder. They've got hummingbird feeders that have built-in ant stoppers, and uh, you can get bee guards for them. Plus, when it comes to the actual feed, the seed, Wild Birds Unlimited has the freshest, cleanest seed around. And Kyle and his staff, they can tell you which seed blends will bring in certain birds, which seed blends will exclude the birds you don't want, like the white-winged doves and the grackles and things like that. There's a lot to know about birding, and the folks at Wild Birds Unlimited will happily help you. But they're a lot more than a bird store. Tremendous selection of gifts. They've got tilly hats. They've got wind chimes. Wonderful books. You just need to go see them. Open seven days a week out in the shopping center at the corner of I-10 and Callahan, right there on the side that faces northwest. I'm sorry, not I-10 and Callahan. Uh, right there at the corner of Northwest Military and Hebner is where uh, Wild Birds Unlimited is. The side that faces Northwest Military, uh, that's where you find Wild Birds Unlimited. They've been there for a lot of years. They're open seven days a week. And if you ever have a question, give them a call, 210-648-BIRD, 210-648-BIRD for Wild Birds Unlimited. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. going to be Ezell, John, and Jerry. Ezell is up first. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Bob. Great morning. morning this morning. Nice and cool. This feels really great. I uh, can't wait to get back out into it. Yeah, me too, and, and do a little bit more gardening. Um, I have some questions. I've, I've rooted plants in water, and, um, and then I, I got to the point where I said, well, you know, I, I want to grow some of them in water. Okay. And I've got some, some snake plants, and they're doing well. Uh, I've got other, t- um, uh, I forget what the other plant is. It's doing well, but... One of the problems I'm having is the one plant that I can't ever, uh, uh, it keeps dying is, is, uh, is a philodendron. Now, the, okay. the, the leaves or the stalks, the ones I'm trying to use are the split leaf. Uh-huh. But they keep, they keep turning yellow. And well, I read that you, you could change the water every six days or whatever, no chlorine, I try that, but they still die. Is, is that not a good one to try and root in water and grow? Well, see, a plant develops a different root system in water than it does in soil. And if you root something in water and then transfer it to soil, all those water roots die and the plant has to start over again making soil roots. But most plants, if they are rooted in water and you leave them in water, most of them could spend their whole life growing in water. That's the whole science we call hydroponics. And, uh, you know, people grow a lot of different things. Now... The so-called split-leaf philodendron, um, are, are you talking about the one that makes a vine or the one that more or less has a central stem and the leaves go out in all directions? Well, the leaves go out in all directions, and they get pretty big. 
Okay. Well, the the thing with that plant, it'll be happy in your swimming pool as long as it doesn't have chlorine in it. But uh, the point is, it doesn't do well in a small container. Uh, that one is philodendron in siloam. And if I were going to grow it in water, I would want it in, a, you know, in something the size of a bathtub for it to really do well. It doesn't do well in a small container, and it may just be that your that your container you're growing it in just isn't big enough for it. Uh, but I've right. I've seen that plant, you know, people that have uh, lily ponds and things like that. Uh, you know, I've seen the siloams growing that way, and they do just fine. But it it's I don't really consider that one to be really very practical just because they get so huge and the other plant that they call splitly philodendron which is actually called monstera it's more in the uh vining philodendron type but that thing will have leaves that are three feet across when that thing is mature so once again unless you've got a waterfall in an indoor koi pond or something like that uh those guys may just simply take more more water volume and more area than you have for them. Uh, they can they can grow in water, but they're really not they're really not a windowsill plant. Right. I saw one in Portugal at, at one of the Marriott hotels and they had a huge uh, clear pot, and they were yeah. stuck in there and they were they were huge. And I, that's when I first got the idea of trying to grow one. But mm-hmm. I've just taken the small leaves and tried to get them to just to you know not die, but even those just keep dying. Well, now, now that plant doesn't really root well from cuttings. Those are almost a hundred percent of the time. Those are grown from seeds, and uh, okay. you, you you won't do very well unless you take just uh, the whole the whole top out of a plant. That's one of them. Um, uh, not going to do very well as a cutting because, like I say, all the commercial people they grow that one from seeds only. Uh, there's a laboratory technique called tissue culture that is sometimes used, but now uh, those, those just aren't real, aren't real successful from cuttings. There's some things that just, um, you know, the the science of it is to me is just fascinating. If you take a chef lira, you can root a leaf off of a chef lira, but it'll never make a plant. It'll only be a rooted leaf, and a hoya is the same way. But if you take a piece of the stem and root it, you get a whole new plant. So there's, you know, it's a a person could spend a lifetime studying, uh, you know, all the different plants and all the means of propagations. Uh, There's a book that's about a thousand pages long called the Ball Red Book that basically talks about propagation and culture on every plant you can possibly imagine. So, uh, well, fortunately or unfortunately, is they're just the same technique doesn't work for every plant out there and you're learning that (laughs) fortunately you're going to kill a few plants in learning it but uh what you're experiencing is not abnormal you're just trying to propagate a plant that doesn't grow from leaf cuttings and you're keeping it in a you know in a situation that's not big enough for it to really grow so uh um i'm glad you asked the question i'm glad i had a chance to uh, tell you what's uh, what's frustrating you there yeah, well, so on, on the, thank you, Bob, but on, on those that, uh, they are growing well in water, I just, I, I, I probably need to fertilize them every so often, every six sure. months, every year, uh, just a little couple of drops of Medina or what, liquid or what? I will tell you what I do, and, uh, and I do this for, I'm, you know, rooting something that I want to keep in water or give to a friend in water. I will add a little bit of fertilizer to the water. And about 24 hours later, I will pour everything out and put fresh water in there. 
I don't really like any kind of fertilizer. I don't like, unless it's a really big pond or something like that, I don't like just putting fertilizer in and leaving it because sometimes uh, it'll stimulate algae growth and things like that. So plants that you are growing in water, if you want to use Hester Grow, it's a great fertilizer to use, but put it in, leave them for a few hours, and then pour it out and replace it with fresh water. It's like you oh, enjoy okay. eating, but you don't want to live with your life in the food dish. <laughs> you want right, to eat right. and then go on with other things, and your plants are sort of the same way. Okay. Thank you. One last thing. Uh, I decided this year, I live out north of 1604, about eight miles in Timberwood uh-huh. Park, yep. and I decided to, bl- to plant one of my bougainvilleas. I had I had uh, grown it so it would go up a stick, uh-huh. and that thing is about four, four foot tall, and I put it on the south side of the house, near the house. And uh, uh, if it freezes, it might it'll probably freeze, but will it come back? Well, of course, depends on how hard it freezes. If it gets to 20 degrees, it's probably going to freeze down and then come right back out next spring. If it gets to 10 degrees, it could die. Now, it's not likely to get to 10 degrees, but I've lived here when it did. So right. I would... I, I would always keep some mulch around the base of the plant for the winter, whether it's just shredded up leaves, whether it's, you know, just any kind of mulch material to keep that okay. lower part of the stem warm so that even if the top of the plant freezes, it'll have something left to come out. Uh, you can also, depending on how big it is, you could just cover it with some insulate or one of the floating row covers, something like that. Uh, because we're not likely to have a freeze that would kill it, but, you know, this is Texas. Don't ever take anything for granted. Right, right. Well, it's kind of small right now. I've seen some on the south side of town that are, are up to the eaves of the house, so oh, I yeah. guess once it gets that big, it, it could also freeze all the way down, right? If it gets too cold, <laughs> you can't cover that. Well, and uh, you're exactly right. Some people think, oh, when it gets grown up, it'll be more cold hardy. No, it doesn't work that way. But I'm thinking over here where we are, I drive down north New Braunfels uh, virtually every day, uh, going down to Dr. Kirby's and places like that. And there are a couple of bougainvilleas on there that come up over the fence. And just these things are absolutely gorgeous. And every year they freeze down to about five feet tall, which is a height of the fence. But by this time, they're 12, 15 feet tall tall and have hundreds right. of flowers on them so uh, uh they're very practical but the farther you go north and uh you're probably on average five to ten degrees colder and if you went on up to fredericksburg it'd be another five to ten degrees colder and if you headed north and west you might you know get up where it gets down to zero with some regularity so uh, right. i think you're fine to plant them out there as hell but i'd be i'd just be watching that weather forecast and covering when it's uh has the potential to be really severe all right. Well, I decided I'd try one of them. I have several, so we'll see. Yeah. But anyway, okay, Bob. Thank you so much for your help. You're always very helpful. It's always a pleasure. It's good to hear from you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. All right. Back to gardening once again on a nice, nice Sunday morning. Oh, just looking outside at the animals and people enjoying the kitty cats and the pretty flowers. It's a great day out there. And, uh, Anyway, I appreciate the calls. Uh, we're going to talk to John and then to Jerry, and John's up first. Good morning, John. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. I've got a weed problem. It's only on the strip of grass that's uh, near the uh, near the road. Okay. What kind of grass? What kind of weeds? Okay, the weeds are tall, like um, like almost like a straw, mm-hmm. but but they're thin. Uh huh. 
And I guess they're, they're about maybe two feet high. They okay, grow so that I've been cutting at. them back on more, but they grow back again. But that's the yeah. only place got them. Yep. What, what you're can looking, I... Well, uh, you're, you're looking at um, one of the toughest. It's a grass. Uh, and it's called KR blue stem or King Ranch blue stem, or there's another one similar called Kleberg blue stem. And that stuff was developed to be the hardiest and toughest grass in the world down on the King Ranch, which is where, you know, the name comes from. And unfortunately, it's so hardy and so tough that it's just almost impossible to get rid of once you get it started and there's just nothing you can spray on it uh i've got it in my front yard i keep it mowed down but my front yard's largely natural so i just keep it down to avoid the rattlesnakes if you really want to get rid of it you're almost going to have to go out there with a grubbing hoe and just chomp out it's a clumping grass it's not a grass that spreads it doesn't make runners doesn't spread underground or anything like that but that one little clump of it is so tough then I swear nothing short of an atom bomb is going to get rid of it. But uh, you just you almost have to go out there. And unfortunately, what you're seeing up tall, those are the seed heads, and it's throwing seeds out everywhere. If you mow it down enough, and if you can get some other grasses growing in there, they will eventually choke it out. But uh, it's doing just exactly what it's intended to do. It was developed to be one of the hardiest grasses. It didn't care if it was hot or dry or wet or wet or dry or hot or cold. And so uh, read about KR Blue Stem or King Ranch Blue Stem if you'd like. But the only way you're going to get rid of it is to get out there with a grubbing hoe and chop it out. All right. Well, you saved me some time, so I don't have to go out there and put anything on it. Right. No, sir. Wouldn't do any good. Okay, anyway. Now, the other I've thing I wanted to ask you about is on nematodes. Uh-huh. Uh, I've been I, I've been uh, getting my nematodes from uh, from from uh, the, the ones that are they're alive. Yeah. And the, I wanted to know if I, if, if uh, I like to put them out when it's when it's uh, rain when it's going to rain. Yes, sir. How long can I keep them in the refrigerator? About two weeks. Um, okay. That's what that's what they tell us is about two weeks. Uh, you know, we, we get a fresh shipment of them every week, and sometimes we run out because we always want to have really fresh ones available. But uh, that's what they tell us is uh, don't keep them in the refrigerator over two weeks. And uh, they're okay. still the most effective. They're the best blend out there. I know a lot of nurseries want to sell the dry ones because they, uh, you know, because they, they can keep them on the shelf for months, but they're just not as effective. But, uh, yeah, I always, whenever I take them home, uh, well, I usually don't take them home until I'm ready to put them out, but if for some reason I get delayed, I always take a magic marker and write the date on them, and uh, so I'll remember to uh, to get them put out. <laughs> and every okay. year I have plenty of people call me and say, I found them in the back of my refrigerator, and I don't know how long they've been there, but uh, if it's been over about two weeks, it's time to get some fresh ones. Okay. All right. I, I want to give you a, a fishing story. My okay. my daughter uh, went to Alaska as a petroleum uh-huh. engineer, yeah. and they they told her they were going to go deep sea fishing, and she had never been fishing, so okay. she said that she got on this boat. They said we're going to recognize the whoever catches the biggest fish, or and the smallest one, and so they tied uh, a big chunk of meat on the uh, to the uh, and they bounced it along the. The, the, the bottom of the of the, of the uh, ocean. Uh huh. And but she said she noticed that they had several rifles in, uh-huh. in the in the boat. 
Uh-huh. And they said, well, you'll see why we need these. Anyway, she caught the smallest fish. It was only 75 pounds. <laughs> was it a halibut? Is that what they were fishing was, for? Right. Yeah, yeah. And of course, of course, they had to shoot these halibut before they put them in the boat because they'd bounce around. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you know what? Yeah. Uh, when I was I was fishing with a friend up there, and uh, we were we caught some not anything that big, but uh, uh, I was real interested that uh, and and we use cut bait. But you know what? You spray your bait with before you put it in the water. You spray it with WD forty because WD forty oh, is, is yeah, it's essentially a fish oil, and it makes the bait more attractive to the halibut and other things. It's been a few years since I've been up there fishing, but uh, that's your story and my story. And uh, I'll let you go, John. Let me get my last break of the show out of the way, and uh, we'll talk to Jerry. There's a reason I don't play Augusta, and the FedEx Cup passes me by. I hit thin, I hit fat, and I got a high handicap. Yeah, I know the score never lies, but there's always that one shot, the one that fills you with joy. It's straight down the middle, yeah, I've solved the riddle, and I think I'm McElroy. But I don't have Tiger's talent, I can't hit a flop shot like Phil. I don't drive it like DJ, but I think that someday if I hit the gym, maybe I will. If I only had more time to practice, if I just had those clubs on TV, oh, it fills me with hope behind these big ropes, thinking someday that could be me. Then life gets in the way. Oh, no, that's not a fishing song, but it's uh, it's a good song. It's... You know, that just, uh, God, I hate to hear that we lost Jerry Jeff Walker this weekend. You know, talk about talk about people that put a smile on your face and put a song in your heart. There's just some good songs out there, and uh, appreciate the appreciate the little lift you give us on, on Sunday mornings here. Yeah, I'm sure there are plenty of people golfing out there, and they probably just missed a shot because they're laughing so hard at that. <laughs> at that song. Well, let's get back to gardening for just a few minutes here. And Jerry is up next. And it'll be uh, Joshua and Harry. Or, I can't read my writing once again. Yeah, Harry to finish up. So, uh, good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Doing okay. Hey, a quick compost question. I wanted to. I wanted to go and pick up a load of compost. And one of the concerns I had, I was looking at the rain or the forecast. That if it's going to rain like they said, I know I want compost that's, I want to say, aged or cold, but do I want to wait for a while after it's rained? Because I'm thinking that some of that, I'm going to call it that nutrients or whatever you want to call it, is washed out of that. Or do what uh, I'm trying to ask? No, I, I see what time? you're trying when to do ask. I do that? Yeah, it, that's a great question. And no, I would not wait because, in all honesty, um, you're getting in compost, you're more concerned about the microbial life that you're bringing in than you are about the actual nutrients. Compost is actually fairly low in nutrient, and the main nutrient that is in there is ammonia. And ammonia is going to turn to a gas and go away. So the best thing that could happen would be for it to get a good rain on top of it to put that ammonia back into a liquid form and carry it down into the ground where the plants would make use of it. And um, so, no, I 
I, I would love to, uh, you know, I would love to get compost on right before a good rain, but uh, it also brings up the point, really, it doesn't substitute for fertilizing. The amount of nutrient in there is not really adequate for what most plants need in South Texas, so uh, it doesn't replace your fertilizer, and rainfall will only make it better, so uh, um, no reason to put it off. Today would be a great day to do it. That answer the question? I think Jerry may have either hit mute on his phone or dropped off. Jerry, you still with us? Okay, I, th- I think he cut himself off, but hopefully he's listening on the radio. But uh, no, uh, rainfall after compost would be a good thing rather than a bad thing. So uh, I would not hesitate to put it on this uh, today, tomorrow, whenever you can get it. I would give you one other bit of advice as far as types of compost. I'm not a fan of biosolids compost. I like most all compost out there. I don't object to the fact that biosolids is uh, human sewage waste, but the problem with what goes down our sewers these days is uh, all the pharmaceuticals, all the chemicals, all the nasty things that uh, really have nothing to do with uh, with the sludge itself. So that's why I stay away from uh, uh, biosolids compost, but uh, you make your own choice. But I, I'll take a good manure compost or you know, a, a, a good blended compost. And I have to tell you, generally across the board, if you're looking for compost in a bag, my favorite is from Nature's Creation. If you're looking for bulk compost, I like some of the products they sell at uh, Stone and Soil Depot. I think they've got like six locations now, so there's one probably fairly close to you. All right, having said that, let's uh, move, get back to the phone lines, and Joshua is up next. Good morning, Joshua. Good morning, sir. How are we doing today? Hey, it's just a good day, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just actually an outstanding day as far as I'm concerned. Nice weather, lots of things to do outside, and uh, nice cool temperature, but not cold enough to cause any problems. No, I hear you. I'm out here. You know, it's pretty it's pretty nice, and hopefully we'll get a little bit of the sun out today. But uh, real, I'm, I'm going to try to be quick so the, other, the last caller gets a chance. Um, okay. We recently got a bunch of different uh, vegetables, you know, and fruits, you know. So we had like tomatoes and bell peppers and jalapenos and all this stuff. Right now they're all in pots, and we uh, bought a bunch of old tractor tires, like really big tires, and painted them up. Uh-huh. And we're going to put the, we want to plant them in there because one, our ground soil is not the greatest, and two, uh, it's to help my mom who can't get too low all the time. Sure. So these sure. should sit there. Now, the other couple of weekends ago, you were talking with a gentleman about these heating pads to put under the potting plants to keep the soil at a temperature that plants would like. Is there a thing, is there some kind of a system we could do that where we could like line the inside of the tires with uh, like a type of coils or something that we could (laughs) use to keep the soil at a good temperature during the cold winter? Well, that's an interesting question, and no, it's it's really not practical. Um, I mean, in a greenhouse where we're growing things in pots, um, they actually put heating tubes in the floor of the greenhouse. They put in uh, plastic uh, PVC pipe, and they actually force hot water back and forth through those pipes, and it keeps the floor warm, but it doesn't keep the top of the plant from freezing and dying. It would only work inside of a greenhouse. So, uh, unfortunately, 
you know, we have cool season plants and we have warm season plants, but virtually all your vegetables, virtually everything in the garden is going to have a productive season of anywhere from two months to six or eight months. But we're just, this is the time of year to get close in to uh, kissing your peppers and your tomatoes and your eggplant goodbye because uh, we'll be planting those fresh again next spring. But uh, the the good news is, bad news is that they're just done for the season and there's not a lot you can do to change that. The good news is that it's now time to plant broccoli and cauliflower and chard and Brussels sprouts and cabbage and kale and mustard and radishes and beets and carrots and turnips and they're in getting close to time to plant onions there are a whole lot of things that you can plant uh and your family can enjoy too but uh you're you're really going to be disappointed big time trying to continue to grow your tomatoes and peppers the only way that you make it through a winter with one of those is to have a heated greenhouse and um uh, again, it's it's not really practical, so I, I, I sure wouldn't spend a lot of time and energy trying to save those plants because we're just getting toward the end of the season that they're going to produce no matter what you do. But uh, like I say, that's the bad news. The good news is there are a bunch of things that love the winter, uh, probably more things you can plant in the winter than you can plant in the summer, in truth. Okay. Um do I have to worry about, like, so does that mean those plants are going to die, or can I still at least cover them and keep them protected so that I still have them when the season starts again? Like, do I die. just write those off and have to buy new plants? Yeah, you do with tomatoes and peppers and eggplants. Plants get their own form of hardening of the arteries, so to speak, and even if you kept them alive through the winter months, um, they would be, you know, they'd, they'd be like... Well, I don't know exactly what a good analogy would be, but they certainly would not produce very well, you know, the second time around. Now, some plants gotcha. you can take cuttings from, uh, what we call indeterminate tomatoes. You could take cuttings from those and uh, root those and grow them through the winter and plant them next spring. You could actually take cuttings from some of your different peppers would grow from cuttings. But the big plants are pretty much done for. Mother Nature meant for them to live for one season, and we can't really artificially prolong that. Okay, thank you so much, and uh, y'all stay blessed. Well, you do likewise, and if you're ever over our way, uh, we have a little gardening guide that we love to share with people, especially people just getting started with it, that will tell you when it's time to plant all the different things. We have our recommended planting dates for fall, our recommended planting dates for spring. We have a little notation on there as which ones are best to set out as plants, which ones grow well from seed. There's just so much to know and uh, so many so many mistakes to avoid. So love to help you any way we can. I appreciate your listening, and please don't hesitate to call any time. But uh, get that garden ready because, like I say, right now you could be planting lettuce, you could be planting Swiss chard, you could be planting kale, you could be planting broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, you could be planting radishes, beets, carrots, turnips. Um, you could be planting October's a month to plant garlic. If you like garlic, man, this is the best time going to plant garlic. Next month we'll be planting onion transplants and, uh, we, we keep on, we harvest something out of the garden almost every day of the year, but it changes from winter to summer. So don't you hesitate to call anytime I can help y'all. Appreciate it, Joshua. Thank you. All right. Let's, uh, finish up the calls today with Harry. Good morning, Harry. Hey, what's up, man? Just another nice fall Sunday out there. It's just going to be a great yeah, day. It's nice, but I got stuff to do. But Ma, <laughs> we 
we, I, her, she has a, a, about, this may be a better question for the doctor, but she got a mini pen. We had to build a pen for her to keep her in the yard, in the yard. Uh-huh. Is there some kind of barrier we can put around the bottom of the cyclone fence to keep her from getting out and going next door? Well, believe it or not, uh, a number of years ago when I lived in San Antonio, uh, my next-door neighbor had a beagle that loved to dig under the fence and come into my yard, which I didn't mind that much, but uh, the most effective way to do that is just with a hot wire. Um, You know, just a, a little miniature electric fence. You can go to a feed store. Uh, and, you know, it's not really wire anymore. Uh, what I use in my vegetable garden to uh, keep some of the varmints out, it's like a polypropylene cord. It's like almost like a rope, a very thin rope that has the little tiny, tiny wires through it. And uh, you use, uh, they, they make a little plastic device that, that you can screw into the fence and then you just simply feed this through it. It's an insulator, of course. And uh, then you just put a, a simple fence charger. It can be either plug-in or battery-powered. And uh, if you've ever grabbed an electric fence, you know it'll get your attention, but it really won't hurt you. And um, that, and it would be a very simple, very inexpensive process just to run a single wire all the way around the perimeter of the yard um, and about What's five it's inches It's a, it's a big perimeter. <laughs> well, it's a couple. Uh, it's going to be a couple hundred feet. Well, I, again, compared to the cost of trying to put, uh, you know, hardware cloth or chicken wire or something down there, uh, it's it's a lot easier. Uh, my business partner years ago had a Great Dane that thought it was fun to, uh, you know, eat the window uh, frames and things like that, and she actually, uh, you know, put put it up, uh, you know, around the windows to keep Jesse from from trying to tear the boards off. But uh, now, if you want to spend, you know, substantial about of money, uh, there is a really neat system called Invisible Fence. And uh, what they do is they have a cable that they actually bury in the ground, and then uh, the dog wears a collar, and every time it approaches that underground cable, uh, it gets just a little buzz, and uh, nobody even sees it or anything else. But I tell you, that dog will not get within three feet of the fence. But you're looking at, uh, you know, spending a couple of hundred dollars minimum to do that. Nice thing about it, if you ever move, you can dig it up and take it with you. So um, that would be that would be the option that I know Dr. Kirby would use and recommend uh, is invisible fence. But again, it's it's a little pricey. If you're looking for a do-it-yourself job, uh, you can go to any good farm and ranch store. And like I say, uh, nowadays we don't use bare wire anymore. We use something that looks like just a cord that has the little wires in it. Very easy to do. Very, uh, you're probably going to pay forty or fifty dollars for the fence charger, but the whole rest of the system is probably going to cost you under twenty dollars. So uh, uh, that would be, you know, even a super active dog like a men pen um, <laughs> would be a great way to. Uh, yeah. know, not do to they have? Uh, would they have solar too? Solar yes, power? they have. Yeah, well, you you have a battery, but you can put a solar charger on that battery so that you never have to do anything with it. Okay. 